The sailor said, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. Do, 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 do. Uh, at night, when the bars close down, Brandy walks through a silent town and loves Welcome to today's bittersweet recording, as it is the final episode of Real Bad Here on the Enter the Real World Podcasting Network. As today, we are discussing the second half of season six of Better Call Saul, the final season of the series. I'm your host, Kevin Ford. My other host, Jerome Cusan, is with me as always. And Jerome, it's time to say goodbye to Albuquerque. Say goodbye to Gene. Say goodbye to Jimmy. Say goodbye to Saul. I'm, I'm a bit sad to see it go. This is kind of an event program. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable to think that when Breaking Bad started, like you may as well have been in a different century. Like I know that you know the show is what ten, eleven years old at this point. Yeah, when it started, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, so closer to fifteen years. But just the way that TV and movies have evolved so much. You know, Breaking Bad came at the uh, at the end of what I would consider like the golden age with your Sopranos and your Mad Men's and just a real upgrade in both the production of TV and the quality of the writing. And Better Call Saul is uh, is ending at what is going to be, I believe, the kind of the end of the uh, of the peak TV era. It's currently there are over five hundred scripted shows but you know who knows how long uh that is going to be sustainable hint it's not sustainable to have 500 scripted tv shows just in the united states alone so better call saul comes in at the end of this era and uh it's uh it's pretty special and it's pretty special that we have been able to discuss every season up to this point every episode and I'm glad that we are going to be putting a bow on this uh, on this series. The other thing that I want to say is I know that there are some podcasts that did the weekly thing of trying to break the show down. This specific part of Better Call Salt, just for this alone, justifies the fact that we wait until the end of a season to talk about it as opposed to going week by week. Because my feelings on this season definitely were like a roller coaster throughout the second half of the season. And having the finale in our back pockets to talk about all of the episodes definitely helps my ability to put into context everything else that happened before. Exactly. That's also why I like to watch like you're watching a season of a show at a time or revisiting something uh, before watching another season. There's a context that wasn't there when you were originally taking it in that changes your opinions. And I think that's of immense value. And like you said, with the I was thinking about this with like the the golden age of TV even all the shows that are now being discussed, like sure, there's you know a show on you know you have the Bear on FXX and some HBO shows and things like this, but most of those are really now. I think most people watch those on a, on a streaming service like a Hulu or an HBO Max or you know, and then there's shows that are designed just to be on streaming services that are getting the critical acclaim. Either it's Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or Paramount Plus, whatever. It seems like that week to week narrative of a of a show on cable television and even in some cases network television is just declined in favor of the shows on on streaming services. And it'd be interesting if Saul came around today, what it would be like, you know, like you said, the fact that it was right after Breaking Bad, you know, the show started on airing in television in 2015. So this is even well before all that stuff 
So yeah, it would be interesting to see in, in what medium it would be it would be put out at all. Yeah, I mean, I feel as though in terms of this show, it feels much more like a streaming show in a lot of ways, um, just from the production qual- from a production quality standpoint, and the fact that episodes, t- the Better Call Saul episodes, tended to go a little bit longer. Like you definitely got episodes that went fifty, fifty-five minutes. I appreciate the discipline, though. I appreciate the fact that we did not get an episode that was like an hour and a half like you did not get a stranger things season four level of bl- of gloat of uh, glut that's the word i'm looking for I, or, or, or bloat either one i think works bloat glut doesn't matter the one thing i will say though is i still think i think i would have liked this season if it was 10 episodes as opposed to 13 yeah, I, you know i think there are there is something to be said about like giving a, a such a show with such adoration some leeway in its final season, especially when they had like a pandemic to endure and some other things to go through. I think giving them their last three extra episodes in their last season, you can argue whether that made for a better or worse show or, or all these other things, but I can completely made. I'm sure they didn't hate the, the extra viewers for three more weeks either on a Monday evening. Well, yeah, that's true. And you know, it's funny. I'm, I was thinking back about my, uh, my predictions and I feel like in a lot of my in, the, in a lot of cases the predictions were wrong, but I was in the ballpark. I know I made two predictions. One was that does come true in episode eight, but I don't remember what my second one is. I meant to go listen to our predictions and I just didn't do it. So I mean, I believe I said something to the effect of the last three or four episodes were going to kind of be like an epilogue, yeah. to Better Call Saul, and I think I was right. Yeah, I think you were right, but I think. You you were thinking more defined of like you're going to have your Saul episodes, maybe a Breaking Bad episode, and then all Gene episodes where they did have some flashbacks and stuff. And, and the time they they played with the timeline a little bit in those episodes. So you're not right. wrong, right? But you're, and then, but they just and, did it a different way than you expected. Yeah, and Kim did not kill anyone, thankfully. Otherwise, thankfully. there uh, there would have been no there would have been no coming back. Yeah, Kit, and and uh, well, we can talk about that a little bit, but. Uh, uh, I think we should just get into it because we got a lot of show to talk about, even though it's only we have, six episodes. I mean, it's only six episodes, but our our discussion about the finale is going to go a long time. Well, then let's get right into it. So obviously, I want to say this is, of course, us talking about part two of season six, because in real time, there was a six week gap between first part of season six, second part of season six that aired. So go back and listen to that episode first if you haven't listened to it already. But just in case, here's a really brief where we left off. So after learning that Lalo was still alive, which Gus had predicted correctly, Mike pulls all of his men off of all locations except for Gus's home and the laundromat. So Mike had a bunch of people looking out for, you know, his family, uh, more, most importantly, Kim and Saul and all these locations to make sure people were safe. And and now that he knows Lalo is alive and uh, coming for Gus, he pulled everyone off of all those locations and put them strictly on Gus's home and the super lab, which is important because – Howard arrives drunk to Saul and Kim's apartment one night, upset with their mind games after the after they made him they they embarrassed him at the Sandpiper settlement case from afar. And unfortunately for them, this is when Lalo arrives uh, to confront Saul and Kim and he shoots Howard in the head and he dies. And that's where we left the season on one hell of a cliffhanger. And we pick up right where we left off here with uh, episode eight titled Point and Shoot, written by Gordon Smith, directed by Vince Gilligan. And there's a lot of emphasis on the writers and directors here, which is why I also put the, the emphasis on them when discussing these episodes. We, we get a, a really great shot of the ocean where you see like uh, 
Howard's car, the door open, his shoe floating in the ocean. And they tell you later, Mike does later, but without even without context, you can tell, okay, this is this is the frame they're going to have for Howard to explain that the disappearance of his body is making it look like he committed suicide. And I believe they said this is the I forget where they went, but this is the only shot of the show that wasn't in New Mexico. They went to some other beach to to get this one, but it was quite a way to to open the the second half of the series. I thought, yeah, uh, the Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul have been known to start their episodes in this way, and it was uh, it was definitely a mysterious and ominous way to begin what was going to be a mysterious and ominous episode because you knew things were not going to end well. Uh, because of the way that the previous half season ended and with what was likely going to happen to Lalo, like these first couple episodes were definitely, uh, we were going to be sweating it out, but uh, point and shoot just this episode. I want to say, even before we get into this, I, I, this might be my favorite episode of the series. And this is, this feels like the, uh, the better call Saul equivalent of Ozymandias. Hmm. See, I still kind of feel like Bagman is the Ozymandias equivalent, but I see, I see your point for sure. Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely one of the two, and uh, what a compliment to Ozymandias that <laughs> we're comparing Seriously. it to. Like that that episode, it's just very simply one of the best episodes of TV ever, and as good as Better Call Saul has been, I feel like they have always been chasing that high in some ways, and. Yeah, it's uh, this. This definitely comes very close, and I really, really like this episode overall. But I will let you uh, present what happened because so much happened. So much happened, and I, and I do want to give a ton of praise to to Racy and Bob Odenkirk. The acting of of Saul and Kim, uh, the fear of of when Lalo returns and kills Howard, and then carrying over to the scene where Lalo basically presents to Saul that he has to go drive to Gus's house, shoot him dead, take photo evidence, and bring it back. And he has an hour to do so. And then Saul talks him into letting Kim do it instead and the fear that Kim shows in doing it. Uh, and then you see Jimmy get tied up and by, by Lalo. And then when he's trying to escape, when Lalo leaves and he falls over and he's face to face with Howard's corpse and the blood is coming towards him. Horrifying stuff all around. And Lalo, of course, becomes the an even bigger villain when he makes uh, Kim put her shoes on in the scene. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I'm I'm glad that they transferred the the heat, so to speak, onto Kim because if if Saul goes, we know that nothing is gonna is gonna happen to Saul. And at this point, is something gonna happen to Kim? Probably not. But I think you at least want to set up that tension. So having her go to meet Gus and and do that, I think it made a lot more sense. And for dramatic purposes, of course, uh, it may, it was it was tremendous. And uh, you mentioned the writer and director. I just want to say the score, unbelievable. All of these episodes, especially this one, uh, just incredible, just incredible stuff. Just yeah, I, there there really isn't anything that I could say. The music uh, for Better Call Saul overall has just been a, a huge accomplishment. And this episode, especially, you definitely felt the propulsive nature. Of it throughout, I got a lot of like Hitchcock and Kubrick vibes from some of these like scores and scenes and the way they were shot throughout this season. I feel like there was maybe a lot of influence from those uh, sort of uh, sprinkled I mean, the show. You know, Vince Gilligan being coming from the X Files, coming from kind of a horror sci-fi 
it would not surprise me if there was that heavy influence of the Twilight Zone. On a side note, I mean, I guess Vince Gilligan's next show kind of has the Twilight Zone vibes, I guess. So it, it really does make a ton of sense that this is kind of where they would be going in terms of their music and the score and having a horror-tinged score is is good stuff. And and I think what you mentioned with the Kim and the drama is spot on because I guess the writer's decision is what's more dramatic, Kim going to, to, to kill Gus or her standing sticking behind with Lalo – and if Lalo's going to leave, then the, the, the obvious choice is for her to leave. And you have her pulled up to a stoplight next to the cops and she rolls down her window and you're like, oh, is she going to say anything? And then she doesn't. Then she arrives to Gus's house. And like you said, the score that that underscores all of this is incredible. And uh, we we know from uh, earlier in the season that Gus has this bank of monitors watching his houses all the time. So Mike's able to ambush Kim, tell him everything that's going on. And I love that we see because Kim has never met Gus, there's a decoy Gus in the room and she says, oh, I came here to kill him. And Gus is watching all this from afar. And then he gets on the phone and talks to Kim and and uh, I believe that's their first ever interaction. And he's really surprised to hear that Saul was able to talk Lalo into sending her instead of him, but it makes him realize where he's going next. And I, and I love that. I, I just, I like that. I like all that stuff with, with Gus uh, and the realizations as they come and how he realizes Lalo has maybe outsmarted him. Yeah. I think Gus's role in the last couple of seasons has been a bit, it's been a little bit up and down just because we kind of know what Gus's fate is. And he is ultimately not one of the, the main characters. And in a lot of ways, he's not even the main antagonist because he's been a part of the, 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 the drug storyline, so to speak. So, this was definitely, I, I would say this is Giancarlo Esposito's best episode in terms of performance and in terms of actually giving him something to do. Because, again, it's really, this is a character that's really tough to write for when you kind of know what's going to happen. Because, I, and I'm going to be making Star Wars prequel analogies a lot but like with the star wars prequels like you had palpatine making his moves like you've already had gus has basically made most of his moves at this point in terms of like where he's going to be at the beginning of breaking bad so there there really isn't a lot for him to do except for kind of this this final action that takes place at the end of the episode that's true although i do think there was something to well how did this man rise to power you know, we saw a little bit of that at Breaking Bad, and I think, like, how does he get established with Mike? And those things are are interesting to see unfold. But I do think, obviously, he gets his big moment here. But you're right. There is some drama that comes out of it. But Gus gets his big moment when he he correctly surmises that Lalo's at the laundromat, and he's planning to expose the super lab. And Gus arrives with his men. Lalo takes all the men out, busts out a camera, because uh, this is well before your your cell phone video cameras. And he he shoots Gus in the chest and makes him... Uh, and he takes a video where Gus shows him the super lab so he can send it to Don Eladio to essentially prove what he's thought all along that Gus has this plan to become the new Don, the new kingpin. And Gus buys time because he makes it seem like that his number is up, but he wants to leave a, a message to show how he really feels about Don Eladio. And it gives him some time to to pace around and the element of surprise lets him shut the power off, find the gun that he planted in episode five. It's a good thing he did that and then uh, shoots all these bullets into Lalo's direction and gets him in um, the Lalo laying on the ground with all the blood coming out of his like neck and his mouth. And he gives this gross laugh 
uh, as he's looking up at at Gus and like blood comes out of his mouth is disgusting, but very appropriate that Gus is the one that gets to take out Lalo. I love the fact that Lalo is kind of smiling at the end because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think Lalo game respects game. I think that's always been Lalo's philosophy. And the fact that Gus was able to get the dump on him, I think he kind of respects it, even though he's going to end up dying because of it and buried underneath the the super lab, which I'm sure you're going to get into. But I think this, it was pretty obvious. This is where we were heading. Like it was, I, I think it was always, one of those things where Lala was, of course, going to end up buried in the super lab because that's just what was going to happen. And, and it only makes perfect sense. And you will you'll never watch those scenes with uh, with Walton Jess in the super lab the same ever again. And because you're just going to know that Lalo and, and somebody else are, are buried there. Just a really well executed scene, and this is one of those. This is one of those episodes that makes you realize why the show has to take place in two thousand and four. I believe two thousand four, uh, because like Lalo could have live streamed this, and Donald Audio would have known everything if this were just a few years later. So yeah, uh, this uh, Gus is a uh, Gus is lucky that Lalo was not able to live stream. Otherwise, uh, his plans. Uh, probably would have had to have been very different. Totally. And, uh, I mean, you could, there's so many times where I think that in a movie, like what if someone just had a cell phone, like home Alone's always the one people kind of point to as how hilarious that would be in, in modern days. But yeah, it is, it is six years ago for sure. Cause we know we're in 2010. Once we get to the, the Gene Takovic days, this is something I thought was the way to go, especially once, once Gus planted that gun in the super lab, it was like the only way this was going to end was for a shootout in the, in the super lab with Lalo getting killed. I didn't know that it was going to be Gus necessarily, but it totally makes sense. And I'm glad it was him. And you're right. I think not only does game recognize game, but I think Gus has to just, or Lalo has to just be like, ah, you, you son of a bitch. You got me. I thought that was a, a, a very tense, but a, a very appropriate way for, for Lalo to go out. And I love that Gus is still all business. And he has to call our old friend Lyle and put him in charge of Poyos for the next week as he's getting stitched up by Mike. And Mike is not happy Gus went rogue. And we've seen a lot of that dynamic between Mike and Gus this season where Gus is the boss and Mike's going to give him a lot of vice and, and, and Gus goes against it. And I think that, that that just that happens sometimes. You get you try to get your advisor, whoever gives you good advice, and you go against it. It reminds me of that episode with um, – Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name, but when Kim is working for the bank and she tells him, you know, well, you know, our advice was to do this and he didn't listen to us. So maybe next time listen to your legal counsel and he decides to to keep Kim on. Kind of feels like the same thing with with Mike and Gus sometimes where it's like you didn't listen to me. Things could have gone poorly. Uh, but Gus Gus has a hubris to him or, or he, there's just things that he has to do his own particular way. Gus just, uh, you know, he seems like kind of a nice boss, you know, putting Lyle in charge and. You know, Lyle's going to run the Poyos. I, I hope he does an acceptable job. And, you know, I know He'll that will be properly compensated when I return. <laughs> Here's the thing. I know that we were not going to resolve every single thing, but I would have loved to have seen Lyle's face when he realizes that his boss was a drug dealer. Like, if we could have just gotten one shot of him just, like, in the like, in, maybe in the middle of an order and just, like, dropping it in shock, that would have been great. Or, like, having the feds come in and Lyle's getting interrogated. It's, uh, it's a shame we didn't get that. Obviously not enough time, but uh, I, I, I just want to know, was Lyle even working 
at Poyos by the time Gus was dead? Like, did he advance in the company? Was he part of the drug deals? I have so many questions, and they were not answered, and that's okay. I have this vision now in my mind of, like, Lyle watching his television at home, and there's a news report about Gus, and then it shows Lyle's reaction, but then surrounding Lyle is just, like, the weirdest sex fetish stuff you could possibly imagine. <laughs> We, we don't kink shame on this podcast, though, Kevin. No kink shaming, but uh, Lyle is pretty buttoned up, sort of like uh, sort of like Gus is. So everyone's got to have their outlet. Gus, I think, is very much his drug empire. What's Lyle's outlet? Let's get that. You know what? New Netflix movie. Here we go. <laughs> Lyle Camino. Something like that. Yeah, let's let's go with that. All right. So Kim gets brought back to the apartment by Mike. Mike's men sneak out Howard's body in the refrigerator, which I thought was pretty clever. And then Mike has to, you know, sit down Saul and Kim. And, and this is where he tells us that the, the whole car thing with Howard and, the, and also mentions that they sprinkled cocaine in the car uh, and then make sure that their alibi about Howard's death is airtight since they they'll know that he was the last person they saw before he died. So they will be questioned uh, and then just says that. You know, you're, you're to go about your days as you normally would and has them both say out loud that Howard's death never happened. And I think what's what's interesting here is Saul keeps kind of looking at Kim while Kim just keeps kind of looking down or looking ahead. I thought that was a very telling body language sign for where things were going to come in the next episode. And uh, this scene also became a meet. Yes, it sure did. Uh, just uh, with Mike or yeah, with Mike telling you, here's what you're going to do. I'm surprised it took this long for that to become a meme, to be honest with you. I, I think it's one of those things where I think a lot more people were watching the show live this year than in previous years. I don't know if the AMC Plus had anything to do with it, but it just felt like a lot of people are like, okay, this is the final season. I'm either going to invest in cable or I'm going to invest in AMC Plus so I can watch this live. It just That's the vibe that I was getting on social media just a lot of people were watching this show live compared to previous years. And I think that is one of the reasons that this exploded in a big way. And uh, Jonathan Banks is, uh, is the best. And if he did a cameo with this, how much money do you think he would make? Oh my God. Tons a killing. I mean, who doesn't want Jonathan Banks to come in and tell you what you're going to do with your life? I, I could still use that. I wonder like what the parameters he would have to put around it. Because obviously with cameos and stuff, you can't just say anything. You right. have to, you know, so you have to, like, you have to, I think, I feel like cameos, you have the ability to reject what you're being presented with. Yeah. So uh, what, if, what if, uh, what if it was Mike Behrman Trout? Oh my God. I, and I bet, and I bet he would command a higher uh, rate of video than, uh, than Jonathan Banks. E- even though the bear can't talk. Oh, the bear speaks. Listen to the podcast. The bear speaks. I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, what I also couldn't imagine was that not only was Lalo buried under the super lab, but so were Howard and they were buried next to each other in the same grave. I would have not have predicted that, but it's, it makes total sense. It's you got to get rid of two bodies. There you go. So here's the funny thing to me is that a lot of people, because the, the season, especially the second half, these first few episodes, it, it can get pretty dark. And I know that Breaking Bad also got dark, but this just felt dark on a more visceral, personal level, I think. So a lot of people were calling the show Breaking Sad, and I can <laughs> never not think about that. And this is one of those moments that is like, okay, Breaking Sad, indeed. Yeah, it, it really was. 
and this is a really sad, very heavy episode. So it may not surprise to hear uh, for you, Jerome, to hear this is the episode they were filming when Bob Odenkirk suffered his heart attack. You and I had a chance to read Bob Odenkirk's memoir, and yes. the way that he writes about just this process, I am not surprised either, just both with the fact that it happened in this episode, but also just the intensity of filming these episodes and the long days and whatnot. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised either. It's just, it feels like as heavy as it is for the audience, it's also very heavy on the cast as well. And I just think, I think we that he's extremely lucky that, you know, he's alive and that there were people around to, to help him. The other thing that's, that I also imagine is, is helpful as well is that this cast actually either they really like each other or they are really good at pretending to like each other. I can't imagine what it must have been like if everybody had hated each other because I can't see the show being good if they all legitimately like didn't like each other. No way. And that, I mean, like Bob Ray and uh, Patrick Fabian lived together in, in Albuquerque when they were filming. That's how much they liked each other, you know? I'm sure that also made sense from a monetary standpoint, but still the fact that they were all living together uh, was crazy. But uh, I hate to say it, but when this news came out over this uh, over the summer of 2021, I had a very selfish thought of just please survive so you can finish the show. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing, especially because there was also the you know, there's and still is the uh, the pandemic that's going on. So there is also that aspect of it as well. Uh, you know, I just want to see Bob Odenkirk do other things, too. Like, Bob Odenkirk is somebody who has just kind of figured out – it, like, it feels like it feels like now he's just, like, ubiquitous and a big star. But, like, even when this show started, it didn't feel like Bob Odenkirk was a huge deal. And, like, because of this, because of nobody, like, Bob Odenkirk is finally getting the credit that he deserves for not just being kind of this underground comedy figure with Mr. Show and things like that. But like hitting and hitting a little bit in the more in the mainstream with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and like I just want to see him do more of this stuff. And yeah, it just it would have been really sad if he had passed for for so many reasons. But for sure, the potential to see more work and to see him continuing to act uh, would have been really great. And I'm sure this is a phenomenon anytime you read anyone's memoir, but it made me appreciate him so much more just for the fact that you forget how long he's been doing writing, acting, all these things, directing. But I would say just pure volume wise, the amount of successes he's had have been very successful. But my God, the amount of failures he had. It's not even like he was never satisfied, but I felt like it. it it's taken him such a long time to – find happiness or find like satisfaction anyways in, in his career of like you're writing, but this you're doing your own show and that's great. But this you're directing, but this you're acting, but you miss some of these things. It feels very notable to me that Bob Odenkirk did, did not write or direct any episodes of better call Saul. Like that's just really interesting given who else directed in this, especially in this final season it's just it's interesting to me that Bob Odenkirk never stepped behind the camera. And I and I think that might be intentional. I think, you know, talking about he di- he directed, you know, Let's Go to Prison and the Brother Solomon in the late 2000s, which were both comedy flops. I think maybe going into Breaking Bad, he was ready to just act and not write and, and just come in and do his acting. And that's a whole that's a whole different ballpark. And it's a lot of work in and of itself. And I wonder if that was maybe something that was offered to him and he declined because he was sort of 
over it. But did he write and direct or do what, what was his role in Nobody? Because I don't think he just acted. I believe I believe he was a producer on it, and okay. he is a producer on Saul as well. So sure. I am sure that he has some creative input of some sort. But I don't. I don't. It's obviously not sitting down and, and writing scripts. But, right. And I am also not going to be the person. So Bob Odenkirk, I guess, was listening to a Cubs game. I am not going to make that cheap joke. So I won't do it. Well, it's also worth mentioning, too, during this whole time, like he helped Tim and Eric get off the ground. He helped bring the Birthday Boys comedy show to IFC. So he still and then he did, um, you know, with Bob and David for Netflix. So he still had like his little comedy outlets and using his status to help people get them off the ground while doing all these things, too. So and that's what I love about Bob. And that's what it seems like uh, he talks about his wife doing, too, like they're. Bob feels like one of those people where you get a lot out of the industry and now it's his turn to give back. Um, and his wife lo- is the person who loves to be those to, to find those underground people and bring them to prominence. And I have so much respect for those people in in Hollywood. And he was um, also apparently a good father, which you almost never hear about in entertainment. Incredible, right? Like I thought it was interesting that he originally wasn't going to take on Better Call Saul because he wanted to spend time with his kids. And his kids were like, we'll be fine. And he's like, OK, now I'll go do the show. Go away. Go yeah. away. <laughs> Wait, we don't have our father here for six months out of the year. We're healthy enough. Go. Yeah. Oh, I hear that, you know, with, with wrestling, I'm sure it's the case of acting, too. If you're on the road a lot and then eventually you're home, it's like, can you go away again? Like we were kind of <laughs> like, this is weird. Um, but the other thing, too, when this news came out, like a lot of the outlets mentioned that Ray Seahorn, Patrick Fabian and um, uh, uh, Tony Dalton were on the set. And you're like, and so, of course, the fan, you're like, oh, all four of them were in a scene together. What's that about? Scary stuff to read as it was going on. But obviously, very happy that Bob Odenkirk is well and doing here. But even in this episode, you're looking like with him sitting in the sitting on the toilet in the bathroom when Mike brings Kim home. And I'm like. Man, Bob does not look good. And you're wondering, like, when was this shot or, yeah, all these other just weird things kind of go in your head when you when you know. But thankfully, we get to move on to fun and games. Uh, Well, sure. I mean, that's the name of the episode. I do feel like that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, Written by Ann Cherkish, directed by Michael Morris. We start with a, a classic montage. I forget what the name of the song is. It's like. Another day or something like that. And it's in the classic, like, uh, you know, they did that something stupid song for the montage with uh, Kim and Saul a few seasons ago, and they had somebody re-record the Sinatra song. This is the same thing. They got someone to re-record a Lou Reed song for this episode. And it's 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 as Mike described, Kim and Saul go about their unremarkable work days while Mike and his men clean their house, burns all the evidence in a barrel. And when they return back to their home, like, it really does appear that nothing happened. It's It's pretty remarkable. But... It, I, the thing I love about this is even their reactions. It's like the apartment looks like nothing happened, but that does not wipe away the memory or what actually happened too. no matter how clean you make the apartment, that memory lingers and what what's done is done. Yeah, I will say that there there is a montage uh, later in the season that it's like, OK, can, can we can we move on? I love this montage, though. This is a great way of showing just how mundane things are. Great transitions. I just I'm always in awe of the technical aspects of these montages and the way that they're able to execute it. And uh, this is no different. And yeah, great song selection really captures everything that is great about uh, this montage. And yeah, it's uh, it's a great way to kind of recenter us on what's going on now after all these dramatic events of the previous two episodes 
we're kind of back to quote unquote normal seemingly. Obviously not for very long, but right. That's what they want us to believe. Well, it's a good. It's also a good thing to show that just going to normal and, and pretending like nothing's wrong isn't going to work, and that and that comes to a head at the end of this. We see what Kim and Saul end up going to stay at a hotel, and Saul tells Kim that one day they'll wake up, brush their teeth, and go to work, and they'll realize they haven't thought about quote it all day, and that's when they know they can forget, and that becomes a very pivotal thing at the end of the episode. So, obviously worth mentioning here, but I think. That's something Saul believes. Kim, I don't know that she necessarily believes that. Yeah, I mean, Kim very clearly is not of the of this belief because of what happens kind of at the end and the way that she chooses to go about her life in the uh, in the final few episodes. But yeah, Saul is very much of the of the we got to keep it going and uh, we gotta we just gotta roll with the punches and yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at. And I think as harrowing as it is, he's much more used to the to the to the criminal world or these horrible things happening than Kim is used to. This is really the first time she's seeing the consequences of her actions in a really dire way. She is uh, she is getting the find out part of the of the that, that, uh, yeah, absolutely that's a perfect way to put it. Well, we got to see what happens to Gus here. He summoned Don Eladios where Juan Bolsa, Hector, and the twins are also there. And Hector, I guess, dictated a letter through his bell um, talking about the Kaliad with Lalo where he was told that Gus was a traitor and the attack on Lalo's compound through uh, Nacho was his doing and says that Gus is their enemy and is plotting against them. And Dot Alanio then says, all right, well, twins, did you hear the call? Well, no. And you say you saw his dead body? Yep. And dental records matched up. And then also remembers Nacho's confession when before he shot himself in the head and the bank records that they found in their house that they don't know that Mike planted. And so Eladio is ready to move on and just move on from the accusation, which Hector is not happy about. And another short-lived meme from this was Eladio mocking Hector and his bell as Hector's being taken away to his guest room. Yeah, I guess uh, for that reason alone, Don Eladio should die, making fun of the handicapped and mm-hmm. physically incapable. So uh, – I will I will rewatch the scene where he gets poisoned and uh will 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 think back to this. Uh, what a right. what a piece of shit. Uh this scene was fine. I, I think it's it's one of those things it's like it I think the word is perfunctory because I think you have to have this scene for everything to make sense in some ways for from a better call Saul perspective. But if you're just watching Breaking Bad, you could just kind of assume that a scene like this has happened. I don't know. I don't know what your feelings on it are, but I, I, could, I could have gone either way on it. But again, I, I would love to. I would love to talk to the people who are going to watch. Who are going to try to watch this in order? Like watch all of Better Call Saul, except for the last few episodes. Watch Breaking Bad, then watch the last few episodes of Better Call Saul. Like I, I would really be curious to see how a scene like this plays when you're watching it in order. It probably plays a lot better. I think your point is valid, but I think it reiterates that really what Don Audio cares about is money. I mean, we saw, I think it was in episode six or seven or maybe even five, uh, Gus is called an earner. He's somebody who earns them a lot of money, and because of that, he's going to get a lot of leeway. That's just how the criminal underworld works, especially with no hard evidence against him. Why would Don Audio shoot his cash cow just, just to make a Hector and them feel better? But I think this scene makes the scene where Gus goes to the wine bar – hit even harder fair enough i i can i can definitely see that and i i love the wine scene which we're going to get to later but i think that is that was a great coda 
to the Gus story, I think. Absolutely. And well, we won't we won't be too much longer till we get to that. But first, Gus goes back home. Mike tells him that the lawyer, Saul and Kim, did their job, which means they explained to the police in a, in a way that was satisfactory enough for them to believe their story about Howard and that they the cops believe that Howard walked into the ocean and killed himself. Uh, and then Gus immediately says, great, construction on the super lab resumes today, even though, again, Mike is against that idea. Uh, but right again, back to normalcy we're trying to see here with these people. But then we do get Gus going to get a cocktail at a wine bar where he has a conversation with David, who's apparently his favorite sommelier. And then David leaves to bring him another wine to try. And we see that Gus has some sort of realization and uh, does the old Irish goodbye to David. And this scene worked for me so well because not only do you get the the like the romantic or lustful tension between Gus and David here. To me, it's it's one. It's it's to me the first time I ever feel like we ever genuinely see Gus happy. Anytime I feel like he's at Poyo Serata or anything to do with it, whether it's a conference or a charity thing, it's always a front he's putting on a fake smile, a fake laugh, a, you know, practiced, rehearsed discussions. But this is the first time you're seeing him genuinely get to unwind and be happy discussing something with someone else. And that's what makes, I think, his realization of because of the life he's chosen and who he is, he can't have this in his life. He can't have a relationship like this. It's too much jeopardy to put that other person in. And that's heartbreaking. And yet, and he leaves. And that's, and I think that's, it's a sad ending for, for Gus. And this sort of becomes a theme is like, yes, you can make a lot of money, but what existence is that if, if it's a, if it's a hollow one. And I think that's the, the sadness of this scene. And I think we come the closest that we've ever come to talking about, Gus in terms of of being gay as well. It's never something that is blatantly said, but I mean, the subtext is very close to being text in this scene. And I also wanted to point out the actor who plays David. Uh, The actor is Reed Diamond. Reed Diamond is somebody who's kind of somebody who's been in a ton of TV and movies. And I guarantee you've seen him a million times. But what is most notable about him is that uh, in the very first episode of The Shield, which was a, a very popular cop show that kind of started – was one of the one of the pillars of the golden TV era. Like, Reed Diamond is a very important part of that. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that he gets cast in this kind of one-scene role and, like, 20 years ago kind of starting the, 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 the golden TV era. Now, again, coming at the end of the – of the peak TV era, you have this this actor who has just been a, a really important part of a number of shows. And uh, this is not the only Shield connection I'm going to make in the in this podcast episode, so be ready for that. But uh, the Shield is a very good show, everyone, and uh, you should watch it. I I don't know if it's on. It was on FX, so probably on Hulu. But yeah, that's that's. I couldn't help but think of that. Uh, when I saw this actor, but it was a very well played scene, and uh, yeah, a lot of subtext, a lot of text going on, and uh, uh, a fitting goodbye for Gus. I would say this is a great way to end the Gus story in Better Call Saul. I think. So one thing, uh, the Shield is on Hulu. I can confirm that. Two, he is also weirdly enough that uh, Reed Diamond is also an agent of Shield, <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Uh, I think I best recognized him from Dollhouse. So you were one of the six people that watched Dollhouse, huh? I, I watched and enjoyed Dollhouse after the fact it was on television, but yes. All right. 
I, you uh, learn something new every day. You do learn something new every day. We also learn Mike goes to Nacho's father to tell him of his son's death and that he now has to worry about the Salamancas. And Nacho's father tells Mike he's no different than the people he associates with. And I thought that was a really good scene because I think it fits a theme for this episode, which we'll talk about at the end. Really powerful scene between the two of them. And I think a lot of the imagery here with them talking to each other between offense, things like that was very well done and very intentional. Yeah, I I have to wonder if they were just trying to protect Jonathan Banks because he is in a lot of scenes where it's just him and one other person or there's a fence between them. So that's that's one of the things I was wondering about. This is a this is a very good scene as well. I think you can almost argue in some ways that it's it's kind of a way to end Mike's run on uh, this show as well, or at least this part of the timeline, because really we only see Jonathan Banks a couple of times after this, and it's from a very different context. So in, in a lot of ways, this is this is a finale for Gus and for Mike, which is pretty fascinating to me. And just the way that, that Nacho's father, I, I'm not going to say he has the upper hand, but the fact that he is able to tell Mike what he's able to tell, like he's only able to get away with that because of who his son was and because of the position that he is in now, like not his father basically doesn't have anything to lose at this point. His fa- his son is dead and like, he knows why he's dead and he knows just how awful the cartels are. And I'm sure there is a story to be written about, you know, what Nacho's father and Nacho's family has had to do in terms of getting to this country, the, the legacy of that crossing the border, the role that drugs have played you know, there's there's a lot that you could do. And again, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, I think, are irreproachable in terms of the quality. But I, I would really have loved to have seen this written from the perspective of the people that are crossing the border and the people who maybe not necessarily the, the drug cartel themselves, because I think we've gotten a lot of that. But just the the ordinary uh, Mexican people that are dealing with this on a daily basis. Like, and I do not want to have any more spinoffs, but if you were going to take an angle in this universe, that would probably be the one that I would take. And I think this is a representation of that, this scene, because Nacho's father, you both feel the pain, but you feel the righteous indignation as well. Totally. Yeah. The, his father does an awesome job in this scene. That spinoff would be excellent. I mean, maybe not as good as the Lyle spinoff, but yeah, it'd be pretty good. Let's go to the HHM lobby, Jerome. This is where they have a memorial service for Howard. Uh, you see a bunch of photos of him in here, and what I love is these are actually real-life photos of Patrick Fabian taken from his Instagram. A heck of a life that Patrick Fabian lives. Lots of traveling and exploration stuff. It, it's one of those lives that looks fun to look at but would be exhausting if I actually did it. It um, is. It looks pretty exhausting. I also want to point out that uh, we were we were watching the award ceremony. Patrick Fabian is also a very tall man. And he's you know, a tall some bitch. You do not get that in a lot of movies and TV because it feels like, you know, Tom Cruise is like a shrimp, and they're always <laughs> trying to constantly hide that fact. But Patrick Fabian, like seeing how tall he was, was really shocking to me. Very much so. You feel like they they shorten him or or elevate his coworkers in the sh- or the scenes or do some creative camera shots because. Yeah, he does not come across as a very tall individual in this in the show at all. We learn why we never hear of HHM in Breaking Bad, and that's because they are downsizing and changing their name. Uh, then we have a, a heartbreaking scene where Saul and Kim go talk to Cheryl, Howard's widow, and Cheryl straight up confronts them about you know the pranks that she had heard from Howard. They were playing on him, and how she doesn't believe that Howard was on drugs, but she wants to. 
hear what they told the police since they were the last person that saw him. And Kim tells her a story that, you know, one night I was working late and I found him in his office snorting something. So, you know, we never spoke of it again. Cheryl goes off to the bathroom to cry. And in the parking lot, Kim says nothing but gives Jimmy this this long kiss, but wasn't really full of that much passion and then drives off by herself. Another harrowing thing, uh, scene here and the actress who plays Cheryl, I forget her name. Uh, I'm going to look it up. Uh, did a tremendous job. Yeah, she does a tremendous job. This is a really heartbreaking scene that again keeps up the theme of breaking sad because Kim is just so vicious in this scene. Like that's the thing is that, you know, I think we've kind of seen her act in this way in a, in, in certain, but we've never seen her like, this feels like she has, she has once again crossed a line. Like if the Howard stuff didn't cross a line, like this definitely did. And I don't know if this is when she makes the decision to, to go away uh, and go to Florida, but like this, this man, this was hard to watch. And uh, Ed Bigley Jr. with uh, some great reaction shots as well. Uh, sadly, the last time we see Ed Bigley Jr. as well in uh, in this series. Yeah, it is, uh, and he doesn't get much to say, but he his his presence there is definitely uh, very noteworthy. Uh, Sandrine Holt is the actress who plays her, and she's been a main role in a bunch of television shows I've never seen, uh, including the the new MacGyver that only lasted uh, uh, 12 episodes. Uh, you say that, but the new MacGyver is still airing, and it's like on its fifth season. Okay, so she was only in it then from 2016 and 2017. I and you, you did not say it correctly. You needed to say it like, MacGyver! Sorry, uh, Patty and or Selma. But you gotta, it. you gotta get it right. You gotta get your Simpsons references right. I mean, I know it wasn't a Simpsons reference, but you could do it, Kevin. I believe in you. And I forgot she was in Twenty Four, but when I see her name, I'm like, oh, I totally remember her being in like the fifth season of Twenty Four. It was still pretty good. So after that, that passion of the kiss with Kim, Kim, you're like, what's going on here? So then you learn the next day that Kim has disbarred herself. I had this expectation that she was going to get disbarred, but I had no idea she was going to do it herself. And back at the home, we see Saul essentially goes through all the stages of grief, like anger, denial, bargaining. He doesn't really get to acceptance because as he's telling Kim, you know, we'll go away. We'll do this. We'll, we'll refresh. We'll come back. He sees that Kim has packed up all of her boxes and her luggage and just says, you know, Saul, you once asked me if, if you're bad for me. But the truth is we're bad for each other and we're bad for everyone around us and people suffer because of them. And Saul says the line that breaks my heart, similar to how Ralph's heart breaks when uh, Lisa yells at him at the Krusty show when he says, you know, we make each other happy. How could that be bad? And then Kim, this is when Kim confesses that she knew that Lala was still alive and she knew Mike was keeping an eye on him and that the reason she didn't tell Saul about it is because he thought it would make her drop their scheme against Howard and she was having too much fun and she didn't want it to end. And that and she says this all through a very tearful confession, and she's essentially taking this blame for why Howard Hamlin is dead on herself. You know, if I had only told him that Lalo was still alive and we were more cautious about this, and we put an end to this, Howard would still be alive. It's occurred to her the toxicity that exists with her and and Saul being in a relationship together. And and this really comes to you know a theme I see this episode is who we are versus who we think we are. You know, Gus sees himself a different way. Somebody who's trying to take down the cartel from within. Mike sees himself as somebody who's the good guy amongst all the bad guys. And Saul sees himself as this perpetual underdog. But Kim's the first person to really take, to really realize who she is and to really be the first person who is brave enough to make that change in her life and say, this is who I am. This is what we did. And I'm going to change it. 
I, I, I'm going to start over. And we see later that she does. But that to me makes all, all the stuff with Gus worth it, with Mike worth it because of, of this whole scene where we see these characters who there's this sadness with them carrying on their lives as is. And Kim's the first person to try to break that cycle and start anew. Uh, and as heartbreaking as this scene is to watch, I do I did take away some hopefulness for Kim and her future. I did as well. I I like this scene. I think I wanted to like it even more because I, I wish that they had done more with the realization that Kim knew that Lala was alive and how Saul would react to that. And I guess we kind of see that, but it just felt like it, it felt like there was a little bit something missing. I also think the scene with Kim disbarring herself. It was also a little bit weird just the way that it was executed because it was like during an actual court case. And if she was actually disbarred, I don't know that that's how it would be. And so it's funny to me that this show ended the same week that She-Hulk started. And one of the things that I guess the She-Hulk people were doing was deleting scenes that were in the courtroom because they didn't know how to write courtroom dialogue. And it's like, so why did you have this? Why, why, why have a a court show where you can't write court dialogue. So taking all that within context, it just, it felt a little clunky to me. Uh, the, the, the Kim scene in particular, just with her disparring herself. I, I wonder if there was a better way of doing it. Obviously they were, they were going for some drama because she's literally in court with a judge, with a client. It's, uh, it's just a little bit clunky and I did like the follow up, and it's, it's so well played by Ray Seahorn and Bob Odenkirk. I mean, just the chemistry that those two have with each other is the most remarkable thing about this show. And I wonder how early they identified it, because obviously, if you watch the first few episodes of this of season one, like clearly this is meant to be a show about Saul slash Jimmy slash Gene and Mike Ehrmantraut. Like those are clearly the leads of the show. But by the time you get to the final season, it's not that Mike is an unimportant character, but it's very clear that he is playing in kind of the second tier storylines and that Kim is much more important than Mike. And I think that I have to imagine that was a change that they adapted, rightfully so, because that's where the chemistry was. That's where the interesting storytelling was. And it's where the ultimate payoff for everything is going to come is with their relationship. And I guess you could say, in the end, Better Call Saul is a love story, and this kind of continues that love story with, with, a, with a pretty dark turn with, uh, with Kim running away and Saul becoming the person that he is going to be during Breaking Bad. Right, and you're right. Kim is definitely a circumstantial character, much like Jesse Pinkman was in Breaking Bad. Uh, you know, the, they fully admit, Vince, Vince does that, Kim was going to be a fun fling for Jimmy, but once they saw how great Ray Seahorn was, the potential for the character and the fan response, that character evolved into full-time player. And same thing with Jesse and Walt. Like I don't Jesse, I don't think was ever intended to be this long-term character, and he turned into one because of of how great Aaron Paul was and how great he was with Brian Cranston and all that. And now it's like impossible to imagine the shows without those characters and how much it did for their individual careers. Um, but yeah, all, all your points are great. This is really a, a love story and, and the heartbreak 
that it, you feel here is is very visceral. And yeah, that the court stuff was very clunky. I do think it maybe went just like a little too long. And you're like, would this really be the case? Is this really how it would happen? Like, would she still have to show up? Why wouldn't they have sent someone into court with this person? It's one of those instances where it's like we're going to bend this a little bit for television for it. But you're right. It it, it, it rings a little bit. I, I would have rather have had this the Kim Saul scene go two or three minutes longer and just delete the court stuff and just have Kim or Saul say, I bet I disbarred myself or Saul figure or Saul has a phone call and finds out. I mean, and I and I also am also I'm also a person who's like, show don't tell. But this is a case where you could just say one sentence of. You disbarred yourself. Why yeah. did that happen? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You could have done that. Uh, but on the show, we go from the the sound of Kim in the other room and or packing tape ripping to cutting ahead to Saul Goodman waking up in the gaudy home that he owns that we saw back in episode one of this season. He's in a spinning circle bed with a sex worker. We see him like rehearsing his courtroom spiel in the shower, uh, taking calls on his Bluetooth, his horribly gross comb over how is it in a show where you see people dead and being disintegrated in bathtubs and barrels that the grossest thing is the flop of his comb over on his head i don't know kevin but i'm not gonna say i fully agree with you but it's definitely disgusting (laughs) it's so gross but and i know that like people have made a big thing about like the um like the the handicap parking thing he uses jumps ahead to like 2008 uh which is fine but really the takeaway here is that Saul is now the full Saul Goodman as we know him in the Breaking Bad universe by the end of this episode. But I, I, you know what? I am picturing Peter Gould in the uh, in the editing room, just being like the flop, louder, louder, yeah. louder, just time wetter, time. sloppier. Uh, I I did like the Nutrigrain bars on the table, and this reminds me. You know the Derek Jeter story, right? This is a completely side tangent, but I couldn't help but think of Derek Jeter when I saw this. Do you want to know why? I think you this was this the baskets because you told yes. this because you told this story when we, on our Brockmeyer podcast. Okay, yes, same principle. Derek Heater, after after an evening with uh, his lady of choice, he would give them a fruit basket or a basket of some sort. And when I saw the Nutrigrain bars, I could not help but hear that and see that in this as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I really like the fan theory that. Earlier in the episode, Saul tells Kim about, you know, one day we'll wake up and realize we haven't thought about it, and that's when we know we can forget. And the reason this jumps ahead four years is this is the day where Saul wakes up and he doesn't think about it for the first time. I think that is a very smart reading of it. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but I think that there are some crackpot theories out there. I don't think this is one of them. Yeah, I think that's something that's you can make you can connect those dots very easily. But the great thing about this episode is I, I remember we, we talked about this here, too, uh, going back to even our first podcast talking about Better Call Saul uh, season one was the whole thing about the show was what does what problem does becoming Saul Saul for Jimmy McGill? And really, for me, it's like you have this this crossroads with Kim and Jimmy where Kim is leaving Saul and she decides that it's time to to change and it's and for Saul, it's you're diving deeper into your issue to just become this hollow shell of yourself to to numb yourself to feelings with sex workers and drugs and, you know, really getting down in the mud with with the criminal masterminds and just really going into this caricature of of this evil lawyer to to mask all this pain and heartbreak you have inside for everything that's gone on in your life. 
And you talk about rewatching the super lab scenes now that we know that Lalo and Howard are buried underneath it. But think about the, the sadness there is in watching all those Saul scenes again in Breaking Bad when you realize so much of what he's doing is just to mask this this pain that he feels, this heartbreak that he feels on a constant basis. Yeah, I, I think that they have said that you will never watch Breaking Bad the same ever again, and that I think is certainly true. And I bet a lot of people have started or are in the midst of Breaking, ba- Breaking Bad rewatches after everything that happened with Better Call Saul. I'm sure that's just happening, and I'm sure the Netflix numbers uh, resemble that. But I really liked Episode 8. Episode 8 is probably one of my favorites. I I liked Episode 9 a lot. I think there were some moments that didn't totally work for me. But I was uh, I was very, very excited for the final episodes coming after these first two. Just a home run and, like, a double or triple. Like, just really coming out of the gate very very strong, and I think the themes that you mentioned uh, coming at the end of the, this episode were were really hit well. Totally, and it was a great way to transition us. We it, and I think it's interesting because there's no there's no Gene in uh, in these episodes, but we're going to get plenty of him to close out the show. And Cinnabon, and Cinnabon. You know what, Jerome? Let's talk Cinnabon real quick. What is your relationship in your life with Cinnabon? I so Cin- there is a mall that is near my house that I would go to, and I, I would see Cinnabon. I don't know that I've ever had Cinnabon before. I ate Cinnabon on the day the finale aired. Wow, that's really surprising. Like, so it is. It is definitely possible that I've had it before. I just wasn't conscious of it. Like sure, somebody brought it, but I've never gone to cinnamon and been like, "I'm going to have a cinnamon roll because cinnamon rolls are kind of disgusting. Like they're delicious. Oh Don't God. get me wrong; they're also kind of disgusting." Sure. So my dad loves cinnamon. It's one of his favorite flavors. Like loves Snickerdoodle cookies, cinnamon buns, all these things. I even remember having it like on occasion as a kid. But then, like, I would say middle of high school or something, Cinnabon became, like, this annual tradition for my family. It would be Christmas Day, we'd have Cinnabon, and my mom would make, like, a breakfast casserole. So we'd have, you know, some protein alongside, you know, this these cinnamon buns. We would really get the mini Cinnabons. The big ones are good, but I have this theory that the smaller you get, the better they are. Like, the center of the roll is bigger than the bigger bun. And I actually think it might be better than the miniature ones. But so for years now, Christmas morning is like Cinnabons and something else. But that's it. That's the only time I have it. It's, it's, it's a once-a-year indulgence, and I think that is the correct amount of time to have Cinnabon. Like people getting them in airports and stuff I don't necessarily understand unless you have like this giant layover and you're going to have something to eat. But just having that and getting on a flight sounds like enormously uncomfortable. But yeah, I love Cinnabon, obviously for caloric and health reasons. I don't have it all the time, but much like watching the bear makes me really hungry for just about anything. Watching better call Saul was like the best Cinnabon advertisement ever. Yeah. I am so curious how their sales were on that Monday that better call Saul finale aired. And what is their Twitter going to do without better call Saul? It's amazing to think about how television and streaming stuff like you talk about that. The bear made uh, Chicago beef more popular, how the Queen's Gambit sold a ton of chess sets. And so I have to imagine something with Cinnabon changed, too, with it being featured on on Better Call Saul so much, especially in this last season when it's featured very heavily. But the question is, did any of the Cinnabon managers, did they partake in a heist? That is a question I would really love to know. 
So for the rest of this season, we are basically in gene mode. We, you know, we, we enter the other timeline. We have some dalliances there, but for the most part, we're in black and white in Gene Takovic's universe. Uh, and that starts with episode 10, Nippy, written by Allison Tatlock and directed by Michelle McLaren. And before we get into the plot, we got to talk about two casting decisions for this season. So on June 27th, we saw the Saul social media accounts announce uh, a new character named Marion to be played by Carol Burnett. That's a pretty big get, I'd have to say. I know she sort of predates our generation, but still, like, that name looms large as a as a sketch comedy comedian. You know, for a decade, she had her own show on television and has done stuff here and there, but... From my understanding, she was a really big fan of the show and let Vince Gilligan and Bob Odenkirk and Peter Gould know this, and they had a role for her. So what did you think when you saw this teaser drop? Did you have any impressions of what this character may be doing? I mean, it's a really strange thing because Carol Burnett is such an icon in terms of comedy, but like her show, because it predates even – like it ended before Saturday Night Live even started, so I think it's really tough – I think it's tough for our generation, I'm for sure even a lot younger, to process what who she is as a person because, you know, I'm going to compare her to Betty White. I mean, Betty White is somebody who has been just a ubiquitous presence and let, let's face it, millennials and Gen Z, they're watching Golden Girls on Hulu, but Carol Burnett really doesn't have that cachet even though she is, you know, just as talented and just as much of a comedy icon so it's it's a really interesting thing. I'm really glad that they were able to get her in the show because you're not only not only are you introducing her into this world, but I am sure that Bob Odenkirk was really excited to have her around because of the the comedy geek that he is. And I know that, you know, in his in his memoir he does push back a lot against certain comedic tropes and some things with SNL, but I I have no doubt that he has a, a ton of respect for for who Carol Burnett is. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it was a great casting choice. The fact that she is an elder, the fact that she is an older person, it kind of brings us back to Sam Piper as well. And the way that Saul, Gene, Jimmy are able to relate to senior citizens and kind of bring them into the fold. So I think it's a, that's a really, really cool thing, I think. And yeah, I was just very, very happy about this, uh, this casting choice. And, what a role she played in these final four episodes. Yeah, it wasn't just like a cameo or anything. She was a significant player in three of the four final episodes here. Well, even actually all four of them. Quick correction, the Carol Burnett show ended in 1978. So it was three years into Saturday Night Live. But still, it, this was before Saturday Night Live was what it became, really. So point still stands. So the role of Marion is actually one of uh, – she plays Jeff's mother. And Jeff is the cab driver from – season four and season five, who recognizes Gene as Saul Goodman uh, when he picks him up in the cab after he has his heart attack and then later approaches Gene on his lunch break at the mall. That's when Gene gives the call to Ed and he's going to disappear again. Then he says, you know what, I'll I'll figure this out myself. So Jeff in those two uh, scenes was played by Don Harvey. But, But when the time this show came around to shooting, he was actually tied into another HBO show called We Own This City. And so the role needed to be recast. So they went back to the original videos of people they had cast before, and they discovered Pat Healy. And they offered him the role, and he had actually just finished uh, a Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. So 
that's got to be pretty cool. You're on a Scorsese film with, you know, Leo and those guys, and then you get a call to come and do Better Call Saul, a role that you lost a few years prior uh, to get to do that. And I know that Don Harvey went on social media and said he was sad not to get to do it, but he praised Pat Healy's performance. And I thought Pat did a really good job taking over this role as well. And they even reshot a couple things that Don Harvey did. A lot in there, but, you know, what did you think of Pat Healy? And have you seen We Own This City? I have watched We Own This City. It is a very good TV show, of course, because it's 2022 and this came out in the glut of Emmy contenders. I think it got missed by people, but this is basically if you like The Wire, then you're going to like We Own This City. It's kind of a coda uh, to The Wire in a lot of ways. It's very, very specifically focused on the police, uh, so to speak, but it's a, it's a really good show, and uh, Don Harvey is very good in it. He's just a very menacing presence, and I, I have a tough time talking about the, the role as it is because I don't know when the Jeff character was conceived, but the way that Jeff is written in seasons four and five and the way, the way that we see him, he's very menacing. With Pat Healy, it almost becomes a very comedic character, and I think that it's there's just inconsistency, and it's tough for me to say whether Pat Healy is good or bad. It's just there there feels like a big disconnect between the role as played by Don Harvey versus the role as played by Pat Healy, and it, this this entire episode just kind of threw me off in a lot of ways, just because of the way that episode nine ended and uh, episode ten. It's just a really strange. Uh, piece of television because I think it's really well executed. Michelle McLaren is one of the best directors that's going. I mean, so from a technical standpoint, like it looks great. The black and white framing is great. The execution of the heists are great. So there's some really, really good stuff in here, but starting with the Pat Healy casting, it just felt like it just felt like from a narrative standpoint, something felt off about this episode. That's the only way I could put it. I think there were a lot of fans who were disappointed coming off that giant Kim and Saul episode into this. And I can understand why this the dynamic is so different. There is some heightened tension in it when they do the heist there, but it just it it just doesn't feel the same. It, it does feel like this this shift is a is a bit abrupt going directly back into it. I think you even told me off air like you feel like maybe if this was what we came back with in season the second half of the season and then got into the other stuff, maybe it would have played a bit better. I, what, I was, what I was saying is this should have been the season six premiere. Right, 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 right. Oh, so and like I, the episode one. Yes, episode one. And I will oh, actually okay. explain. We'll get to the end and I'll explain my logic behind making it the season premiere because I think it, it actually would make sense based on how the episode ends, but we'll, we'll get, we'll get there. Okay. Well, really this episode, I kind of subtitle it how, how Saul gets his groove back because we see Gene use Marion to get back to Jeff. Cause he obviously is a charmer with elderly people, as we talked about with the sandpiper stuff in earlier seasons. And it's him taking the power back. Cause right now, as he sees it, Jeff has this power of knowing his identity. So how is Saul going to get his power back? He tantalizes Jeff into getting in the game, as he puts it, to help him and become rich or whatever. Because, again, he's he's a taxi driver who lives with his mom. He's doing okay, but not great enough money-wise, I should say. And so what he does is he puts together this elaborate plan for Jeff and then his friend Buddy to rob a department store in the evening in in the, the Cottonwood Mall where Gene works at Cinnabon. 
Gene, he surveys the store, builds this whole thing in a field so they can maximize their time and the potential for stealing. And then in terms of security, Gene uses his in from his heart attack to go and say thank you to the security guard who helped him by bringing him Cinnabon as a thank you and then befriending the other security guard, uh, the other night watchman, played by the incomparable Jim O'Hare, the character of Frank. And it's somebody who Gene befriends, talks Cornhuskers football, all this stuff. What a great casting role here for for the character of Frank. I, when I saw the episode start and I saw Jim O'Hare's name, I'm a big Parks and Rec fan, so I knew exactly who that was. And him as a security night watchman is just a pitch-perfect role for him to have played. And uh, when he mentioned his wife, you pictured Christy Brinkley, didn't you? I sure did. Uh, so can we talk about how much of a how much of a nerd I am with this please, uh, please. sequence? Yes. So what? So one of the things that they were talking about, they talked, they mentioned the quarterback of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Martinez, and with all due respect, I, I would figure there are not a lot of Nebraska quarterbacks named Martinez. So I did some Google searching, and I was able to place basically where this episode takes place, Kevin. So uh, do you want to know when this episode t- t- takes place? You told me, but yes, please, let, let us all know. So the, the, game, they, the specific game they mentioned took place on September 4th, 2010, but it's weird because there's snow on the ground during the, Mar- the initial Marion sequence, so I'm not quite sure if it's September 2010, but basically, you could put this episode, you could place this episode in the autumn of 2010. And that is also interesting, Kevin, because I believe September 4th, 2010 is the date that uh, Walter White comes back to uh, Albuquerque, isn't it? That sounds correct. So I don't I don't think that that is an accident, that that's the way that they that they scheduled it. So. Yeah, basically we are we are in 2010, so this is this is just mere months after everything in Albuquerque has broken down, and I, I think placing this in 2010 makes a lot of sense because you know with technology, I mean it's remarkable just how ubiquitous smartphones are. Even just a few years later, like Jeff would not even be a cab driver by the in, in within the next few years because of the fact there is this app called Uber now. So. Like things have just changed so much in the last few years, and yeah, that's uh, it's it's a really interesting thing to think about. But yeah, this places us in the autumn of uh, autumn of 2010, and yeah, Jim O'Hare is uh, it was very very nice to see him in this role because we we, we want to see Jim O'Hare working, and uh, all he all he had to do was just sit on set and pretend to eat Cinnabon all day, and that's got to be uh, depending on how many takes, either really really awesome or really really terrible. Uh, I would say that's a that's a heck of a payday, to be honest with you. I'd eat Cinnabon. To pay me to eat Cinnabons all day? Oh, twist my arm. Um, and here's the other thing I'm going to say. So there were some people that were that were critiquing the fact that he used a knife and fork. And Kevin, I'll tell you what. Have you if you've ever eaten a Cinnabon, you need a knife and fork. Yeah, Don't how could sin- they're they're huge and they're and they're and they're just like gross and slimy. How on earth are you just going to eat with your hands? Yeah, I mean, those people are those the people who think that are, are gross. It's it's like the difference between like, okay, if you eat a pi- if you eat regular thin crust pizza with a knife and fork, you are a monster, right? Yes. 
But if we're talking about deep dish pizza, you have to eat deep dish pizza with yes. a knife and fork. Otherwise, you are, again, a monster. Yeah, classic Chicago-style pizza. That It's a must. There's no, there's no way. There's no way to do it without burning your hands or just making a mess. It's Y'all are the monsters for saying he's the monster for eating with a knife and fork. I did not also, see that criticism. I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, because it, it, it made me really mad. <laughs> like irrationally angry. Uh, I love how food has become such a prominent part of this podcast. Too. Seriously. On a different note, the, the burglary goes down. There's a very tense moment where Jeff slips during the process and Saul has to further distract Frank for, before he sees him on the monitors and he pretends to break down to tears and talk about how lonely and depressed he is. And then once Jeff finally regains consciousness and is off screen, he can let up again. But suffice it to say, I have to imagine there's some truth in the acting behind this. But the, the tables have been turned as the next day Gene's able to tell Jeff and Buddy, you know, this is now mutually assured self-destruction, as he puts it. If you turn me in, I could turn you in, and then everything blows up. So now the power is back into his hands as he wants it. But he goes back to the department store at the end of the episode, and he's sort of eyeing up a very uh, a Saul-style shirt, and he lets it be. But this is why I think it's the sort of how Saul got his groove back. He's starting to get more comfortable in his old shoes. I actually thought about you watching this episode because it's essentially a heist episode and you love your heist episodes. See, isn't it ironic? I'm always the one that likes the heist episodes. And this is like, this is where I, I'm not going to say that like the episode. It just narratively, it felt like it was in a weird place. I think that's where I come down on it. And I'm convinced that this should have been the season six premiere because one of the reasons that I think it could be is that the way this episode ends is that you could make the argument that it, it is officially Gene leaving his old life behind. Like, yes, he's looking at the Saul suit, but it could be you could read that as, OK, this is like the end of Saul officially now. And I think it could have been it could have worked out really well. And I think you could have you could have ended this episode if it was the season premiere and been like, well, maybe that's the last time we see Gene. Like, I, I just think it would have been a really interesting way to start the season because we've started every season with Gene and to have the starting like season six, the final season, have an entire episode dedicated to Gene. I just think it would have played a lot better narratively from a momentum standpoint. I think it would have worked out. And it, it just felt like the heist was good. Like, I don't think the episode was bad, but it just felt like it was in a really weird place. And I think I was a bit concerned after this episode in terms of we were where we were going, because it's really hard to get that momentum back. I think the um, I think episode 11, episodes 11, 12 and 13 are still very good. But this episode just feels like it didn't work in terms of where it was placed and where it came narratively. And I know that the show is trying to play with time, but they've always played it pretty straight. Like, yes, there have been flashbacks and yes, there have been times when they've gone back in time to look at, you know, um, they've looked at, looked into Kim's past or they've looked into uh, slipping Jimmy when he was a kid and when he scammed his father or, karaoke with his brother so they've certainly done flashbacks but those have generally been to start an episode and they've generally otherwise played it straight with flashbacks and the way that these last four episodes go it just felt like they were kind of changing the rules and that's that's especially when you're at the end like this it just it felt a little strange to me i think that's a fair critique 
And I was one as you were talking, I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if it's the same store that Kim stole the jewelry from when she was a kid. But we know it can't be because it was a different mall in the show, which is sad. Uh, so episode 11 is titled Breaking Bad. Uh, and we'll get to into why that is a little bit later, but we're going to stay in our current Saul timeline for now. Episode written and directed by Tom Schnauz. And Tom Schnauz is the writer or director I see, and I go, oh, shit. Something's going to go down. Jerome, I have to say, I did not call Francesca being the most evil person in this show after everything else we've seen. You absolutely stole my joke. I was going to make the same exact joke as you, Kevin. I, since you, you got there first, so why, why is Francesca the most evil person on the show? Because she's a landlord. That's gross, man. Like, if you want to deal drugs, fine. If you want to be a shyster lawyer, fine. But <laughs> if you're going to be a property owner and exploit uh, people in a mid-sized southwestern city, then you are a monster. A monster, Kevin. Maybe tainted by Saul. Maybe Francesca has no other choice. But still, of all the things we've seen, especially in the pandemic, landlords, by far the most evil thing we've seen on the show. No question. Absolutely. Like, unacceptably so. Like, forget arresting Saul. They should arrest Francesca. Oh, are you kidding me? I do love that they called her, what, Narca? We didn't get enough time with those characters, I'm, I'm sad to say. But it's important we go back to Francesca because she makes good on the promise she made in the in Saul to call him on November 12th at 3 p.m. as we saw in quite a ride. Uh, Saul calls her from a payphone and kind of gets the update on what's been going on and says that sometimes she still gets followed or her mail tampered with or her phone tapped and that basically everything that he had his hands in are gone. The nail salon, laser tag, vending machines, and all of Gene's assets have been seized. But most importantly during this call, Jerome, we learned uh, something about one of our favorite characters. And since I stole your thunder with Francesca, I'll give you the floor to tell us about this gentleman. Uh, So Huel got to walk because the DEA behaved improperly and they literally stuck Huel in a hotel room. Uh, Kevin, you you cannot imagine the look on my face when they said that Huel walked. And basically he got to live the rest of his life and go to New Orleans and do whatever he was going to do. It just made me really happy because I I just wanted to know that Huel was okay. I don't care about anyone else. I just wanted to know that Huel was okay. We don't we you know, we were probably texting a little bit more during the first episodes, but as we got later in the season, we would sort of not say anything till the episodes were over. But when they mentioned that Huel walked, the excited message I got from you told me everything I needed to know. Yes, I I didn't text about any of my thoughts on any of the final four episodes except when Huel walked. I specifically mentioned that because I had to. It's part of my gimmick, you know? That's right. We also learned that Bill Oakley is now a defense attorney, which comes into play later. But she says that she did get a call from Kim, who wanted to know if Jean was alive, but Francesca kept her mouth shut. So this prompts Jean to call Kim's place of employment, Palm Coast Sprinklers down in Florida. And we get this faraway shot where we see Jean talking to we don't know who on the other end of the phone. But it seems to turn argumentative to the point where he bashes the phone against the receiver and smashes the phone booth. So – We'll eventually learn the other side of it, but here we're leaving knowing that whatever conversation he had did not go very well. Well, Kevin, you say that, but there are some sharp-eyed viewers who went to the German translation and the French translation and kind of pieced together what the phone call was going to be about. That they did. And I admire the dedication, but boy, do some people just have too much time on their hands. I mean, this is – I'm I'm used to this with what we saw with Lost People and all these other things. You get a dedicated fan base, and they're going to go – above and beyond to get these things. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so hard to to execute this stuff and to keep things a mystery. They they basically kept who on the other line was a mystery, but basically you figured it out from the the German translation. It seems exactly. Yeah, I think if you did, you'd realize it was Kim. But people were like, "Oh, did he talk to a manager or a receptionist or something like this?" And then maybe she wasn't there, and he'd lose contact. Whatever. Lots of lots of things to consider there. And, and uh, my guess is that Gene destroying that phone booth, my guess they did not put that phone booth back because <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. in 2010, people don't even need laptops anymore for anything. But Marion needs them in 2010 to watch her precious cat videos. <laughs> the only good thing about the Internet, I would say. I mean, look, there's good dog Instagram accounts or cat Instagram accounts or other animal things. But, yes, that's about it. Hopefully Marion does not fall into the Fox News trap. That that was my number one concern. Oh God. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a salient point, to be honest with you. And this is Jeff as he tells Gene, like, hey, this is the only big purchase I made with the money I made. And I and I kinda laughed at big purchase because I bought a new laptop pretty recently, and they are way less expensive now than they were in twenty ten. But yeah, in twenty ten that's like a thousand dollar plus purchase nowadays so you probably get a, a pretty solid one for uh you know south of five hundred dollars uh but anyways gene has another scam for them to pull off but despite the fact gene told them they're done so whatever happened with this phone call i i am led to believe got gene to say hey we're back into scamming things and this is a much more elaborate scam as gene goes to these bars befriends these rich single guys gets them drunk sends them home in jeff's cab Jeff gives them a water bottle with barbiturates and drops them off at their house. Buddy then goes in uh, and takes pictures of credit cards, tax returns, all these things so they can uh, steal from them a little bit later. Uh, and you see another little bit of Saul come out as Gene is in his home and he pulls out his old swing master. That, that foot thing we've seen in the opening of Better Call Saul all these seasons, and I don't know that we've seen before he pulls out again. Uh, and he's also paying for sex workers once again. So he's really back into the swing of things here. The plausibility of this, like being able to go to a place like Omaha and find these single guys, it's just – it's a tough scam. And uh, what I do find most interesting about all of this is that we are once again kind of, again, in this mid-range like Albuquerque and Omaha. And like this is really where, where Saul Gene thrive. Like it would be very interesting to see like him in a bigger city. He probably wouldn't be able to get away with this because I think – the way you could frame it is that, you know, in a big city, like, there's too many smart people that would just see through all the bullshit. But, like, Gene is able to exploit the – it's not small-town mentality because Omaha is not a small town. But there is a different – there is a very different vibe when you're in a city that is mid-sized versus your Chicago's, your New York's, your Los Angeles's. And, I mean, there are certainly dumb people in those places as well. But – it, I think Gene is able to carve something out partially because this is New Mexico and this is Omaha. And I forget what they said on the podcast because they mentioned this too, but there are enough like businesses or like, you know, corporations or whatever in Omaha where there would be enough of these rich men in the city for it to make sense. Because again, that's the kind of research they do. But yeah, this is a lot of fun to watch play out even buddy like bringing the dog with him to i assume as a as a lookout in case anyone comes in dog barking actually gets gene in trouble with marion because she's watching cat videos in bed and hears a dog barking and sees her and then she looks outside the window and gene is there rendezvousing with buddy and jeff in the garage 
And what happened was is that one of the perps – or I'm sorry, one of the targets that, that Gene found has cancer. And he learns about this because he has to take his pills in the evening. And Buddy, when he went to his house, he found the pills in his pocket and said, you know, I know he has cancer. Those are the same pills my dad has. I'm not doing it. And Gene's mad and says, you know, hey, just because a guy has cancer doesn't mean he can't be an asshole, right? You know, I, I know this and obviously strong reference to Walt. And then he fires Buddy and says – Jeff, you're driving me back to the person's house, and we see Gene breaks into the home, and that's where the episode ends. Interesting for Gene to take this tactic with this mark. It's one of those things, like, clearly they're making a connection between the perp and Walt, the fact that they both have cancer. And almost anybody else, a normal person, would look at somebody with cancer and immediately be sympathetic. But because Walt, I guess you could say it, it's like a form of PTSD, like, the PTSD would be so bad in this case that he's like, you know what? No, people with cancer suck. And it's, that's that's very much what's going on here. And there is – it's it's a combination, I think, of desperation plus the fact that I think part of me thinks that maybe Saul wants to get caught as well. What do you think? 100%. I do think there's a part of him that – Either he wants to be or like there's that there's that thrill of getting caught. But I think at this point, you know, what is what is life as Gene Tackovic for him? Is that is that really living? I mean, he's sort of hiding in plain sight, but I think he's found his thrill again for life. And if that means getting caught, then then so be it. What What is he really losing by getting caught at this point, I suppose? Yeah, certainly that. And and for this scam, like this is a weird scam because. Like, there's so many more people involved. Like, he is going to get caught. If he didn't get caught in in the next couple episodes, it, it was just – it was always going to end this way. Totally. Yeah, and I, I think that's an appropriate ending for the Saul character. And then we'll go actually to the Breaking Bad timeline. There's a couple flashbacks here. And this – I love this kind of, like, synchronicity in the Better Call Saul episode titled Breaking Bad, we go back to the Breaking Bad episode titled Better Call Saul. And that's the episode where Walt and Jesse kidnap Saul in their RV, take him out to the desert, threaten to put him in a grave. And because they don't want him to let Badger lead them to the DEA and then to Heisenberg. And there was actually some predictions about how this would they be used because in this scene they're wearing ski masks. And I even think you brought this up. I forget if it was in our last episode or off air, but you were curious how they were going to use him, and I think you specifically said something about Aaron Paul and his hair because on the show Westworld he has hair. But I'm not sure if he has hair or if it's a wig because isn't is he balding or bald? Possibly, but I I don't know. But I, I think you maybe you were talking then about um, Brian Cranston. But there was a lot of people who predicted because of the hair situation this and and because this is sort of like a way to to, to link the two shows. Like this scene specifically would be where they were going to go with it. Yeah, I mean, I sort of figured this is the direction that they were going to go in. I there, uh, so there are basically there's there is a Walt and Jesse scene, and then there is an individual scene with Jesse, an individual scene with Walt, and right. I only think one of them is good. I did I did not think this flashback was particularly insightful. Well, I do think it was important because of the confession that Saul makes in the final episode that he needed to actually be in the lab and understand they're the creators, they're the distributors, and to have an idea of exactly what's going on with Heisenberg. 
Right. Um, I could definitely, yeah, you could make the argument in order to end the Better Call Saul show that you did have to have this scene. But mm -hmm. it was just, again, if you're going to bring Walt and Jesse back, like there has to be a very specific and clear reason for doing that. And like, especially when, when Jesse asked about Lalo, like yeah. that uh, it was like, Ooh, it was very clunky. Well, but here, so I think the issue there is too, is when you kind of get the fans getting in their own way. I think Vince and Peter feared the backlash they would feel is if they, because for every season, when are we seeing Jesse and Waltz again? When are we seeing Jesse and Waltz again? I feel like they felt like if they never brought back Jesse and Walter or showed them in the entire Better Call Saul timeline, because of that, they felt like they would have had the fan a, a disservice to the fans. So clunky, arguably yes, but I think giving the fans what they want in some respects and finding you know a proper ish place to do it. I don't know. It, it is what it is, I suppose. I would have preferred to not have them at all. Sure. Because I, I think the show has justified its existence beyond just being the Breaking Bad prequel. And for that reason, I think it would have just been better if they had never appeared at all. Um, so that's that's kind of where I come down. Or I just I would never I would not have announced that they were appearing in the final season. I think that for me was always the bigger issue because I think it created expectations of, oh, when are we going to see them? In which episode? Is it going right. to be the first half? Is it going to be the second half? I, I never would have announced them. I think it would have been much better as a surprise. Clearly they were trying to get viewers though. Right. But it's just, it's really weird to me. Like when you read, like, because Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston, both, they both talk about the circumstances with which they were on the set, like they were there for a few days, but they basically were like in hiding. They had to stare at an Air Airbnb, like it was kept very, very secretive. And then they just announced that they were going to be in the final season. It's like, so yes. why did you go through all that? Like, I, I think this would have played much better as a straight up surprise. I think even Aaron Paul mentioned that in like a like a, a Fallon or a Jimmy Kimmel or something like that, and he's like. He's like, yeah, because uh, it was like literally the day after that announcement. He's like, yeah, I guess we can talk about this now. So I think even they were like went through all this and then he just announced it. But yeah, I I feel like you and I watching the show and all this, we you and I are in agreement. Like it stands alone as it is. You didn't need them. But it's it's those outside people that to, to convince or whoever to get more viewership. I think that's that's obviously the reason they did. So it really wasn't for us. It was for the people on the fence. And that. It can be harmful. I think it's I think it's genuinely amazing that the one surprise the, the surprise cameo from a former Breaking Bad cast member was by far the best cameo, and I don't think that that's an accident. Absolutely. Well, and then one other thing we do see here is that uh, Mike is providing information to Saul about some potential clients or current clients, and one and then this is when he lets Saul know that Walt has cancer and. Uh, and says, you know, look, he's an amateur. I would advise you against it. But Saul still sees potential in Walt. We see him go to the high school. And then in the Better Call Saul episode of Breaking Bad, that's when Saul goes inside, tells Walt he's too easy to find, and then offers to be his full-time legal counsel and help to cover his track. So get some connections made there. Whether that was necessary or not is up to, you know, the viewer. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought it was fine. And it fits into, especially with the mark with cancer and the way that it's inserted into the episode, I thought was at least interesting. Yes. It's, it's tough because I think we all want to see Mike. We want to see Jonathan Banks. He has been such an important part of this show, but because of the nature of the Gene storyline, 
it's not it's it's tough to find places for Jonathan Banks to be, but I'm glad that they were able to find a spot for him in this episode and in the final episode as well. Yes. And we actually continue uh, the the ending of episode 12 Waterworks, which is both written and directed by Vince Gillian, ends us in the Breaking Bad timeline, but I feel like we should just talk about it up top for continuity's sake. And it's and I think it's interesting to note I believe this is the only episode of the entire Better Call Saul series that is solely written by Vince Gilligan. He's a co-writer on like four or five other episodes, and he directs a bunch. But this is the only sole writing credit he has on it. And I thought it was interesting to do it for the penultimate episode rather than the finale, although I think it works out great for what's here. But I thought that was interesting to wait this late into it for Vince Gilligan to be the sole writer of an episode. Yeah, obviously, Peter Gould is the creator of the Saul character and of the show. So I think it makes a lot of sense for him to kind of bring the uh, land the plane kind of by himself. I think what uh, what I would say is that, look, Vince Gilligan, this is not I don't think he would say that this is that his show as much as Peter Gould's. But I think to a certain extent, like I think he wants to to kind of give himself closure and. In a lot of ways, I think being able to write and direct this episode is closure for him in this universe. I I I almost wonder what the what role the pandemic played in this. Like, did Peter Gould or did Vince Gilligan decide it's like, well, with the pandemic going on, what else am I going to be able to do? So I'm going to go and and write and direct an episode by myself. And yeah. I'm sure I think, from, a logis- from a logistical standpoint, I'm very curious to know, like, was it always the plan for Vince Gilligan to write and direct um, this episode and to direct, uh, what was it, episode, he directed what other episodes in season six? In season six, I'd have to see. But I do think that it the directing is more the issue than the writing, because the writing, I think, was done a lot of Zoom. And they finished writing well before they started shooting. So uh, that wasn't a major issue. Um, so he directed, sorry, Vince Gilligan directed episode two, episode eight, and then episode 12. I mean, he, he definitely directed two of the best episodes of the season. And it almost makes me think like, you know, there's some people who like, they're better directors than writers. And I don't think Vince Gilligan is a bad writer, but I want, I feel like the magic for him might be in the directing. I think that's true. I think in a lot of ways in terms of this series and, I would even say El Camino. I think the directing is much stronger uh, than the writing, and I don't. I don't necessarily know why that's the case. But I mean, look, if Vince Gilligan is creating a show, the next one, of course, I'm going to watch it. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not a crazy person. Like yeah. when you create Breaking Bad and help co-create Better Call Saul, like you are going to get the benefit of the doubt for your next your next project. So in the Breaking Bad timeline, we see Kim having to come to Saul's offices to sign off on the divorce papers. And I think the difference in the characters here is it, it's it's heartbreaking. Saul is procedural. He's rude. He seems uncaring about it, while Kim is stoic but fighting back tears. And when she leaves the office, she's approached by Jesse. So we get to see Jesse and Kim here. And, th- and this is so interesting to me because you're seeing Kim – leaving the office and everything that occurred in Better Call Saul has occurred to her and everything that's coming in Breaking Bad has yet to happen to Jesse Pinkman. Jesse recognizes her as being the person who helped uh, her, his friend Combo, who we do see in Breaking Bad, then asks if Saul is the real deal. And Kim says he was when I knew him, which is also a heartbreaking answer to that question. 
Also a lot of rain, which you don't see in Albuquerque and you haven't really seen in this show. So I think that was uh, that's definitely a choice as well. Something they mentioned, too, is that like the fake rain apparently really fucked up Aaron Paul, like gave him really bad headaches or whatever. And I guess you don't think about that with having to do fake rain. You know, I was going to point out that Aaron Paul's performance in this scene is really strange, and that is probably why. The reason why Jesse is there is because of Saul's latest client, Emilio Koyama. Do you remember who Emilio Koyama is in Breaking Bad? Absolutely did not remember this until I I think I've read up. I think in listening to podcasts and reading it, that's the only way I was able to identify who he was. He is the person whose body is dissolved in the bathtub of Jesse's home in episode two, which results in the bathtub falling through the floors of the home. So I believe officially Emilio Koyama goes the longest period of time between when they're seen on screen in Breaking Bad versus when we get to see them again in Better Call Saul. Season one, episode two of Breaking Bad to episode 12, season six of Better Call Saul. From the second episode to the to a penultimate episode. There you go. And that's our Breaking Bad tie in here. But now we're back into Gene land, black and white here. And we get to see Kim for the first time in this universe, who is now a brunette living a, a, a super normal domesticated life in Titusville, Florida where she has a desk job at Palm Coast Sprinklers as a copywriter for the catalog and brochures. When I listened to the podcast about the episode, they had the costume designer uh, on the show, and she would dress up Kim in the in, in Better Call Saul in those seasons, and she had to do it here. And she said the direction she got for how to dress Kim was that of being drained. And I thought that that spoke a lot of to how Kim is here in this episode. There's a lot of like little questions she gets like from her her boyfriend about like, oh, I got Miracle Whip. Should we try that instead of mayo? Or and she's in the office and they ask, hey, we're going to get ice cream for this birthday. Should we do vanilla or strawberry? And she can't even give a straight answer to those questions. It feels like somebody who's so afraid now to do any harm that even the most harmless questions she can't give a yes or no answer to. It's such an interesting portrayal of Kim here versus how she was in the Saul timeline. It's like. Not only is she trying to hide and do no harm, but she's also like with everything we see with her relationships and her jobs and friendships and all this other stuff. It's like she's denying herself joy, too. Yeah, I mean, she's put herself in a prison of her own creation. That's kind of the impression that I'm getting. I mean, she moved to Florida, so that immediately puts you in kind of a in kind of a prison of 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 her own design. It's uh, it's it's just a really sad and depressing thing. Kim is a brunette now. Her wig was really strange in this episode. That that was one of my observations. Her job is fine. Like I think there is dignity in whatever work you choose to do with yourself. So I think if if you're going to critique aspects of Kim's life, don't make it the job that she is choosing to do. I I would be much more critical of the of the people that she chooses to spend her time with both romantically and platonically. Uh, Her friends seem uh, like a group of Karens, which I think is partially by design. I think that her inability to give opinions and whatnot, you know what I couldn't help but think of Kevin when they were talking about this. What could, what couldn't you help but think of the Futurama, the neutral planet? (laughs) How does one man become so neutral? Is he born that way? Not Kim. Kim is not born into neutrality. She's forced. Right. She is uh, she is she is forced into neutrality. Yes, Kim. Should we choose vanilla or strawberry? All I know is that my heart says maybe. 
we have not gotten a Simpsons reference in yet, but we definitely got a Futurama reference in, and that, that makes me very happy because Futurama is a great show, as is this show, Better Call Saul. And we've danced around this, Kevin, but we need to talk about <laughs> Yup Yup Guy. All right, you, you take you take it away, my friend. Uh, so Kim's romantic partner is is not anywhere close to to being a Saul like figure, and yes, Saul Goodman. Jimmy McGill, Gene Takovic, they, they, they have their flaws. But in in terms of the 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 um how do I put this? The the making of coitus or the of coitus, it is very clear that the Kim has taken a, a step down. Uh because look, again, we are in a series where there is murder, where there are drugs, where there's where there's all these terrible things. Like even this episode is going to have Gene potentially doing something really terrible with dog's ashes. But there is nothing more horrifying than the love scene when Kim's romantic partner is just saying, yep, yep, yep. It's just, it is repulsive. It's gross, and it's just the most, like, pedestrian, boring, routine, rote version of sex you can possibly have and it seems like kim gets the most minimal to no pleasure out of it and it's it's a it's a harrowing scene uh for sure i guarantee you that saul goodman for all his flaws knows how to pleasure his romantic partners do you think saul and jimmy and gene are like a version of hulk hogan where hulk hogan has a a very large penis but terry bolea has a normal sized penis I I did not think I was going to get asked anything close to this question. Um, man, I, I don't even know how to answer that. Great. Then let's just move on away from it to where we see Gene's side of the phone call from last episode. And he does, in fact, get to talk to Kim. He uses an alias, but whatever alias it is, Kim clearly knows who it is. And she's very spooked to hear from him. And Gene's being sort of coy, who says he wants to catch up and just let her know that he is still alive and still getting away with it. Ha ha. And but Kim is not. Ha ha. She says, you shouldn't be calling me. And frankly, you should turn yourself in. And this is when he gets angry and says, maybe you should turn yourself in since you're the one living with the guilty conscience about your part in Howard's disappearance. And Kim looks like she's ready to, to cry. And then she just says, I'm glad you're alive and hangs up the phone. A, a hard phone call to watch for sure. Yeah, not not very comfortable, and I think they're both right. I think I understand where Kim is coming from, but like Kim is Kim is not as guilty as Saul. Like Saul has very clearly done a lot of really terrible things in terms of what's happened on Breaking Bad, but like Kim has also done some pretty terrible things as well. Like the confrontation with Cheryl alone at the funeral is is definitely a big one, but there's 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 a lot of blood on her hands as well. So I think when he yells back at her, I think he is justified in doing so. Now, you go back to that earlier scene, and with how rude he is to her when they're divorcing, like, like yes, he is being, – being rude on a base level is bad. But Kim also lied to him as well. So I think it's really important to think about these two characters in terms of, yes, Saul is a bad person. Saul belongs in prison. Like, he deserves to be caught. But, again, Kim is not – totally innocent and i think that's really that's really an important discussion point that i wanted to get across in talking about all of these episodes that that kim is not an innocent person and i don't know what she quote unquote deserves but she does not she doesn't deserve to get off scot-free sure 
I also think in the in the flashback, I get sort of the idea that him being rude to Kim is both a self-preservation technique and also to maybe help her. It's like if I'm mean to her, maybe it'll be less hurtful because she's leaving a jerk versus leaving a, a committed relationship. Or maybe I'm re- reading too much into that. The same thing that Walt did in Ozymandias. There you go. Perfect. So Kim takes Gene's advice when he says – you should you should turn your or she doesn't turn herself in, but she confesses because she flies to Albuquerque and presents Cheryl with a written confession regarding everything that her and Saul did to Howard about his reputation, the, the damage they did to it and the truth behind his death. And then tells Cheryl that she also submitted an affidavit to the district attorney, uh, but then also tells her, you know, because Cheryl asked what's going to happen. And she says, well, to be honest, since there's no physical evidence and everybody in this scenario is dead except for her ex-husband, it's unlikely she's going to be prosecuted. But then we see on the airport shuttle this this one shot of Kim where she eventually just breaks down emotionally. And yeah, uh, and the fact that it's an affidavit uh, means that it's it's essentially her under oath telling what the story of what happened to the police. Kim finally gets this off her chest uh, and she's going back home. But yeah, the emotional breakdown is, is I think, very understandable. For sure. And the thing that I like the most about it is that, you know, it's it's very cathartic. It's this great moment of like she has finally alleviated herself of kind of what's of what's been going on. So it's a, it's a really good scene. And like, yes, she is going to open herself up to a civil suit, but like, again, what evidence is there and, you know, how are they going to be able to fully explore that? And again, what resources uh, does she have as somebody who works, you know, at a sprinkler, at a sprinkler factory? I mean, I guess it could be worse. It could be a box factory. Yeah. I mean, and you go back to it, there's nothing wrong with her job, but I just think it's the, it's a, it's a pretty joyless, soulless thing. It takes her away from the thing she loved most, which was the law. You know, she did not, she was trying to deny Howard of that. And ultimately, did and I think uh, you know she was complacent on what Jimmy was doing to Chuck too, and took the law away from him. So she's taking away from herself for now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's uh, it's it's a great episode, but it's also the kind of episode where somebody trying to hypothetically win an Emmy and trying to get votes to win an Emmy. This is the exact episode that you want, even though it is not uh, Emmy eligible until next year. Yes, there you go. And I think we talk about Francesca being the worst person in the show, but I got to say, Gene almost smashing an urn of somebody's dead dog's ashes on their head. That's up there for pretty disgusting. So I was watching – so I would watch every episode on AMC Plus. Kevin would watch on regular AMC. And when this happened, I was like, oh, man, Kevin's going to be so mad. (laughs) And I was. Oh, I was mad. Oh, he was so infuriated. Because Gene takes his sweet-ass time, and this Mark's home for whatever reason, and the Mark is able to to get up and go to the bathroom. Unfortunately, he falls asleep before Gene has to smash there and over his head. But the fact that he was about to do it is pretty disgusting. Yeah, even though he is a cast member from Big Bang Theory, nobody deserves that. Oh, God. Well, you know what? Maybe I take it back. I mean, but the poor dog, like it's about the oh, dog. True. It's about the person. Uh, you're right. You're totally right. He could have smashed it on the ground to, uh, to nobody and it still would have been pretty awful. Yeah. And what's going on outside is Jeff is waiting in the cab. A police car idles behind him. He panics, drives away and crashes into another car because it's very icy outside. 
Gene. See, I, I think I read that scene differently. I read it as he's trying to cover for Gene and that he purposefully crashed. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I read it as a panic moment. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you could bo- you could read it as both. I read it as he's trying to cover and get the police away from the house. So he like driving away driving away really quickly wasn't going to do the job. So in order to make sure that the police for sure had to talk to him, he crashed the car and then kind of took a sweet ass time getting out of it. Could be because you you would have to imagine like if you're speeding away, the cops are going to have to go after you, right? Like, I mean, would they yeah. necessarily for sure go after him, though? Sure. No, because I love that he crashes and the cops like kind of like have this heavy sigh, like, OK, I guess we have to do our job now. I mean, their discussion of the tacos is pretty funny, too. It is. Yes. Um, it's, uh, it's really good stuff. It is. And so, of course, Jeff gets taken to the police station where he calls Gene and, and Gene is able to get away scot-free because of all this going down. So maybe your point stands. And he's waiting for this call in his house. And he says, you know, just at the same time as the cops are helping me out, their target runs outside and notes that he's been robbed. So he gets arrested for the robbery, uh, but tells Gene that the cops don't know anything because he doesn't have anything on him. So then Gene has to call Marion and kind of talk her into, hey, we got to go to the police station to get Jeff out. You know, he didn't do anything. He was caught in a bad way. But this, that and the other. And Marion starts to get suspicious because – Gene is surprisingly knowledgeable about Nebraska law during their discussion, not to mention, of course, her seeing him outside their house the night before. And so when Gene arrives to pick up Marion, she's watching something on her laptop. She's like, ah, you know, you can go without me. And Gene gets suspicious and pulls out her headphones, and she is watching Saul Goodman TV ads on what I imagine is YouTube or whatever this universe's version of YouTube is. And Gene is getting ready to intimidate her into silence perhaps by choking her to death with the phone wire but when he has her backed up against a wall and snatches her life alert necklace marion says that he trusted him and he has this moment of weakness and lets it go and marion uses that life alert button to call the authorities and say that saul goodman is in her home and he has to flee the scene and that's how we end the episode and man there's no coming back for gene if he chokes Carol Burnett to death with a phone wire. I mean, potentially killing someone with cancer, potentially killing someone who is an elder. Like it's uh, it, it he, this uh, this definitely goes to some places. You you have to love that it is the, an older person that ultimately is the one that kind of breaks this salt thing completely wide open in Omaha. Like that is clearly not an accident, no. and I uh, I really like that. The other thing that I think is worth noting is didn't somebody in the Sandpiper case say to Jimmy uh, in one of the earlier seasons that she trusted him as well? So it's kind of a parallel like moment. That's a really good point. And I bet that she did. That's probably the one that he try, like turns her friends against her. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like this was very clearly meant to echo an earlier moment that Jimmy had with the older folks. But now you get to this moment and Gene just has that look of recognition on his face. Like clearly he is about to cross a line and will never be able to come back. And uh, yeah, it's pretty harrowing scene. Great ending to the episode. A uh, great direction here in these final few moments, but uh, what a great way to end the, uh, end the episode, uh, an episode that I mostly liked. I think there were some clunky things, but, this uh, this definitely set the table really well for the uh, the finale, I would say. 
Yeah. And Irene is the name of the character I'm thinking of in the Sandpiper case. We saw her in um, episode seven of the series as well as part of the Sandpiper settlement. So now we go to the final episode of the series, episode 13, Saul Gone, written and directed by Peter Gould. And you and I both read Bob Odenkirk's excellent memoir. And he says in the book that Vince Gilligan gives credit to Peter Gould for creating Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad. So it is only appropriate for the creator of that character to both write and direct the final episode as well. I like that note a lot. And ultimately, Gene gets caught. He goes to his home and gets his shoebox of diamonds and stuff. And then he has to run away and he hides in a dumpster where it all gets spilled out. And these astute cops apparently hear him in there, and that's exactly where they catch him. And as another character says a little bit later, I think that him getting caught in a dumpster is very apropos. Uh, this feels like the smartest thing the cops have ever done on either Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. I feel like the cops have been written to be very dumb on both shows, but this was actually – there was actual some actual ingenuity here. Like the fact that he got caught in a dumpster so early in the episode, it's like, well – this is uh, this is going to go to some places because I feel like once Gene was caught by the police, I felt like he wasn't going to die. Like I feel like he wasn't going to end up like Walt at the end of Breaking Bad. Same. So I was kind of leaning toward uh, Saul being in prison. I, I got that inclination right around eleven episode episode eleven or so. I was just like, this is not going to end with him dying. It just. It did not feel like we were headed in that direction. This is not going to be like a shooting at the OK Corral, like with Walt shooting all the Nazis and whatnot. This just – it felt like we were headed in a very different direction. So it's like, OK, he's busted. So clearly he's going to end up in prison somehow, and it's just a matter of like how do we get there and what happens and are we going to see Kim again? And that's that's kind of where my head was going, but – the fact that he ends up in this dumpster, losing the diamonds, not able to make a phone call. It's just it's a it's it's a kind of a depressing ending if this is how it had ended uh, for Gene. But, of course, uh, there was a there was a lot of episode and apparently a lot of commercial breaks. I saw a lot of people complaining about the commercial breaks during uh, during this. You mean they sold a lot of ads for the last episode of a, uh, of a highly a thought of series. I can't believe it. You know what? I would just be like, God damn it, AMC. I am not watching whatever <laughs> fucking iteration of the walking dead you've come up with now. Just stop. Just <laughs> Seriously. Stop. Yeah. Just let it, just let something die, please. I mean, I, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I understand like if AMC had footage of the next, like Bob Odenkirk show or the next, uh, Giancarlo Esposito show, 100%. like I would understand that because clearly those are coming and, I don't know if Ray Seahorn show is going to be on AMC, but like clearly they have things in the pipeline, but it's, it's not happening. Nobody, people who watch better call Saul are either already watching the walking dead or they have long given up on the show. Like if you have an episode with Bob Odenkirk on it, then maybe people are going to watch it, but otherwise, nope. Totally. And Cooper's bar is going to be on AMC, which, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to anything that, you know, Racy Horn and Bob Odenkirk and John Carlo do. Yeah, all in. Oh, and and yes, there was a very deliberate attempt to make this a different ending than Breaking Bad, as you as you mentioned. And we'll get to that when we get to the ending. But for now, as Saul's in prison, he has to settle up stuff at Cinnamon and then call Bill Oakley. And this is very Saul about, you know, I'm doing you a favor by making you my advisory council. And it's going to end up on top, like always. Can't help himself. The great Bill Oakley. It's It was great to see him get, like, 
a prominent role because he's just been he's been kind of a pr- ubiquitous presence through all of the seasons and now to have him play such an important role in the finale and get to play off Bob Odenkirk in some really funny ways like he's never been a main character but I'm really glad that he kind of got a lot of space in this episode to play and he's also probably got one of my favorite lines which I will get to when uh, we get to the courtroom scene well and I think it's also important that he isn't just the the bored person at the courthouse fishing through his bag of chips anymore. He's like a legit defense attorney. So that's been a fun evolution of his character to see. But we do get to see another character here because Saul is brought to negotiate negotiation meeting with the opposition and on his way into the room, he walks by and sees in another room, Marie Schrader. And what was your reaction to this, Jerome? I, uh, I about lost my shit when I saw her because I immediately recognized her, and I know that some people were maybe thinking, oh, is it Kim, because they're both brunettes now. I immediately identified her as Marie, and I was like, oh, shit, well, we are going, uh, we're going to be going to some places now, and I always felt like her character was done very dirty on Breaking Bad, and just some very bad subplots, especially in those first three seasons. So I was like, okay, let's see where this goes, because she is clearly in some sort of mourning. She is clearly out for some revenge of some sort. So I was I was very curious to see uh, how they were going to use her, and the fact that she was a total surprise. Her name was not... I don't believe her name was even in the credits. If it, if it was in the beginning credits, I missed it. Yeah, I don't... Because I try to keep an eye out for that stuff, so... Uh, I, I was just – I was very, very intrigued by how they were going to use her. Well, and the thing I appreciate too is they didn't overstuff the finale with cameos. I think even they – I read somewhere they thought about like, all right, is there a way – not in the finale but just in the series in general. Like is there a, a way to get Hank in there and they did that? But even like you know, can we get Anna Gunn and RJ Mitty somewhere in here? And they didn't. They left that all alone. They just had Marie and then the actress who plays Gomez's wife come in later. And they left it at that, and I think the the finale is better for that, just leaving it to the one cameo, basically. Well, I mean, you do get other cameos, but you you have a theme oh, with sure, those sure, cameos sure. with the yeah. uh, with the, the idea of the time machine and the the not so subtle connections you can make to uh, a Christmas Carol, which is something I've been reading and listening to other podcasts, and they were all talking about the idea of the three ghosts and the three the three different people that have played prominent roles in Saul's life. Yeah. Perfect. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But for now, the negotiation meeting, which I don't, I got some like weird like Kubrick vibes that we talked about this later with like the score and stuff. But like this room somehow reminded me of like the the war room in Doctor Strangelove for some reason. Like you are not, room. you are not the first person to mention that, and I okay. also definitely thought of that as well. So if that is not an accident, okay, perfect. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought this. So they talk about how with everything that Saul has done, he's facing up to life plus 190 years, but they negotiate down to a 30-year sentence. And Saul is very distracted by a two-way mirror and asks for Marie to come into the room because he knows she's watching anyway. And this is when Marie gets to tell Saul that you know he is complicit in whatever happened to, to her husband and Gomez. And this is when Saul gets to spin a story about he's also a victim of Walter White. And he didn't run away from facing his crimes, but rather to run away from Walter White. And he's able to convince the lead assistant U.S. attorney that, you know, the right jury might just see him as a victim, too. And it results in further negotiations where Saul gets them now to only seven and a half years, which just so happens to be the same amount of time that Better Call Saul was on the air. I like how the way the scene ends, how Saul has to he's asking for like all these other kind of ridiculous things. 
and he wants to sweeten this pot by telling him uh, this inside story. When he starts talking about it, they say, oh, you're talking about Howard Hamlin. And they kind of smirk knowing that he doesn't have anything else to offer. And they reveal to Saul that it was Kim who spilled about Howard's death and did so on the record. And Saul is shocked to find this out. I really like how this scene played out. Uh, This was a tremendous scene and really – I think it's going to get overshadowed by everything else that's gone on the finale, but what a great coda. I've used that word a million times on this podcast. It feels like, but what a great way to use Marie. I think that the fact that you get the righteous indignation, I think it's great to have her in this position because I think whenever you get these complicated men's stories, I think you, you kind of see the resolution of what happens to him but you don't get a lot of fallout. And this was an opportunity to explore the fallout. The fact that Marie is not without a husband. She basically doesn't have a family because Skylar was involved. So who knows what their relationship is like. And I mean, that is probably destroyed forever and ever. But the other thing that you could say about Marie is that she does um, get some sense of satisfaction in being able to, to yell at Saul, but Saul is not lying all all the way. I mean, certainly he is complicit in a lot of really terrible things that happened. But what he says about Walt is plausible. Like, he really was taken to the desert and threatened. So it's not like he was lying about that. And I think he is a bit overindulgent in some cases. But he, you could certainly make the argument that he could convince one juror. That's all it takes is one juror. And basically, you have Saul manipulating the justice system. And once again, I think the justice system is portrayed to be very flawed in this episode. It is portrayed to be very flawed throughout the entire run of the series. The fact that it can be so easily manipulated and used for specific purposes, that is what Saul has done in just about 11 seasons of this of these two TV shows. We've seen... Saul over and over again exploit the justice system. We saw him do it in Omaha with the way that he basically was able to turn a small-time heist into a federal crime because trucks cross state lines. So we've seen him do this over and over again. So it's fitting that we get to see him do it one more time. And instead of serving 190 years, he's going to potentially serve seven and a half years because of how good he is as an attorney. Like, as much as people talk, call him the shyster lawyer, as much as they say, oh, he's not the type of person that he's, – he's the type of person that only guilty people hire, guess what? Saul is a really, really good lawyer, and yes. people can never forget that. That's and, – and again, it brings me back to the discussion of The Office where it's like as much as a doofus as Michael Scott has to be, you have to show him being good at his job enough times to justify him not just being fired outright. It's important to show that he is a good, competent, excellent lawyer. And but I, but to me, you know, you boil it down to its essence. It's Saul being Saul, trying to reduce his sentence, get away with it, you know, cakewalk his way into this pretty sweet prison sentence. And then once he hears about what Kim did, it sort of changes his perspective, as we see in the on the plane ride. Uh, and and there, it's when he hears from. Bill that Kim presented her affidavit to Cheryl and that Cheryl's currently shopping for a lawyer and may make a civil lawsuit. And then Saul tells him that he has more information to trade about Howard Hamlin and says that it involves Kim. 
and they're wondering like, what more is there else to say? She kind of turned herself in, but he promises that it'll really sweeten the pot. And from Kim's side, we see that she drives to a free legal service office in central Florida where she has to volunteer. And one night when she's working late in a you know filing cabinet, she gets a call from Suzanne Erickson, who brings to her attention that Saul has been extradited to New Mexico and he's going to give testimony that may affect her. And that gets Kim to fly to Albuquerque to attend the hearing. Do you have anything to say about those two scenes before we get into our flashbacks? Yeah, I think in terms of the airplane scene, it's just Saul is is feels like he is totally in control of this situation. And I think that's a, that's a really fun part of this. The other thing I want to mention is the way that they frame these attorneys. It's always really fascinating to me the way they do it because, of course, this woman, we know that she is a good attorney because she is representing very clearly a young woman who is pregnant, who has trouble standing and walking around. So clearly from a visual standpoint, like we are cueing that she's like, quote unquote, one of the good ones. Whereas with Saul as an attorney, like you would see like these greasy looking people, like they would be, you know, they would have a lot of tattoos or, you know, they would look unclean. So from a visual perspective, like we are clearly, we're clearly identifying these people in very specific ways. So I think that that's, that's something that's worth noting for the last time because, like clearly from a visual standpoint, that's how they've always tried to do it. But the thing that I've always said is like, even though Saul is not a good person, Saul is just exploiting a legal system that is also inherently bad. And even though Saul probably represented a lot of guilty people, you know what? He probably represented a lot of innocent people who maybe didn't quote unquote look innocent. And I think that kind of pays off uh, when we get to the prison. Yes. I mean, I think that's a a big feature of the show is how flawed the legal system is that someone like Saul is able to exploit it the way he is. I guess I should start with the before the flashbacks asking, did you ever read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells? I have not. I have not either. And it's unfortunate because maybe it would have uh, we could have made some connections and some thematic uh, had some thematic discussions, but no. I think we get enough of that anyways with the scenes here. And you also see it. We see it on the nightstand and Kim and, and uh, Jimmy's home. It's one of the items that is at the very beginning of episode one of this season when Saul's house is being seized. You see the the time machine by H.G. Wells there. So they've placed it a couple times where you're sort of raising an eyebrow about like what is this book all about? So throughout the episode, we get three flashbacks. The first one is from the episode Bagman. Where Saul and Mike take a break, and that's when Saul asks Mike what he'd do with a time machine. And he says he'd go back to March of 1984, the day he took his first bribe, then go forward to check on some people uh, five or ten years to make sure they're doing okay. And Saul gives the colder answer about going back and investing in Berkshire Hathaway stocks, and Mike's like, really? There's nothing you change? And Saul kind of changes the subject, and they move forward. The second one is in the basement of the best quality vacuum after Walt and Saul go to Ed to disappear, and they're waiting for that to happen. And Saul asks the same question to Walt, and Walt gets into this thought exercise a bit too seriously as a scientist. But ultimately, he says, well, if you're asking about regrets, I do. I would have stayed with Gray Matter Technologies, which is the company he and Elliot Schwartz started that made Elliot Schwartz rich and him not so much. And Saul says that, oh, you know, well, I slipped and fell when I was 22 and hurt my knee, and that's my regret. And obviously Saul is in disbelief by this, or Walter's in disbelief by this, and says, oh, so you were always like this, and walks off. 
And then the third flashback is Jimmy bringing groceries to Chuck, who's in the thralls of his electromagnetic sensitivity. And uh, as Jimmy's sort of taking on his starting his new path as a lawyer, Chuck says, you know, there's really no shame in changing your path. And Jimmy taking that slight says, well, you know, Chuck, you never changed your path. And uh, as Jimmy leaves, Chuck picks up his copy of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. So obviously that book is taken from Saul as sort of like an heirloom of Chuck's that he at least identifies him. But all of this, I think this talk about regrets and changing things is very poignant to what happens in the courtroom scene with uh, Jimmy here. But obviously it's a good way for us to see Mike one last time, Walt one last time. And I believe I remember hearing that. Uh, Chuck was sort of like this last minute edition and that they're like, we really want to see Chuck one last time. And I'm glad they did. Cause I was happy to see him again too. I mean, Chuck was a prominent part of the first three seasons. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense to have him be a part of this final episode. Like, I think you're trying to just close the book on everything. And I think it makes sense to have Chuck one last time. And I, I do like the rule of three. So I think having these three scenes, makes a lot of sense from a thematic standpoint, but also from a logic standpoint. I don't think it's any one I don't think it's any coincidence that Mike has the most, I would say, deep answer because clearly as as cold as Mike can be and as process oriented, like he is very clearly a man with a lot of regrets and he has talked about this in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Like just the regrets he's had, the things that he's trying to do. I mean as much as Walt talks about earning money for his family like that is very clearly something that Mike is doing as well, but is not as braggadocious about it, even though he is also as, uh, as, as, as questionable morally, I would say. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence either that uh, Walt is a really terrible person in both of these scenes, and especially in this one. He is just being very, very didact- didactic, and I don't think that's a coincidence because – I don't know – I. My guess is that the writers are still – it would not surprise me if the writers were still a little bit bothered that people see Walt as the hero of Breaking Bad when he absolutely is not. So having Walt be just absolutely obnoxious in these two scenes, um, I think it really works out, especially in the in this scene. My understanding is that this, this scene with Chuck basically takes place immediately before the pilot of Better Call Saul. Yeah, that's my understanding, too, with where the timeline is. And like this is kind of an it it feels like everything is new, like the electromagnetic thing and him running the errands and all this stuff is kind of a new thing. And he's new at starting practicing being a lawyer and and all this stuff. Uh, And and the relationship with them isn't as bad as it would eventually become. Yeah, it got pretty bad, didn't it? Huh? It it sure did. Uh, But this then leads us all to the hearing where Saul ultimately admits that he lied to the government just to get Kim into the room and comes clean about helping to build Walter White's drug empire, saying he was a willing participant, helped keep Walter out of jail, covered up his murders, laundered his money, all this stuff, and says he got rich himself. And straight up says if it was not for him, Walter White would be in jail and many good people would still be alive and says, including, you know, Hank and Gomez. And, and straight up says, you know, Walter White couldn't have done it without him. And then adds one last thing and admits his role in the events that led to Chuck's suicide and when he's done, he uh, he says, you know, I am J- James McGill and ultimately gets sentenced to 86 years in prison. A lot to this, but I like that he he does his own time machine thing where he just says, I'm going to come clean just like Kim did to everything. I'm going to give he gives closure to not only himself, but to a lot of people around him. 
I love the role that Bill Oakley plays in this scene. I love how everything plays out. And I think that, you know, hey, he's going to basically be going to prison for the rest of his life. Uh, but I think the the absolution, uh, the absolvement that it brings, Jimmy is ultimately worth it. And uh, I really like how the scene played out. What about you? I love that Bill Oakley's like, that thing with Howard wasn't even, or that thing with Chuck wasn't even a crime. I loved it. I I howled. And I also love when he tries to recuse himself from the hearing and she's just like, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I guess it had to end in a courtroom scene, huh? I mean, I, maybe we could have maybe we could have all seen this coming. Like, of course, it was going to always end up with Saul in court in some way. And it's it's a it's a really powerful scene because we've seen we've seen Saul acting in court before and really turning on the waterworks, so to speak, and just kind of being a phony. But in this case, he comes across as being very sincere and basically is like he was very superficial in the uh, in the time machine scenes with Mike and with Walt. But in this case, like he is basically reliving all of his regrets that he has had, everything from Howard to Chuck to Walt, like because of what Kim did, like Kim said to turn himself in. And this is him turning himself in. And it's a it's really powerful because like, yes, Walt did say in the end, like he did it for himself, but he was still kind of a selfish asshole in the end. But in this case, like. I guess Saul is kind of doing this to, you know, maybe get whatever he wants from Kim in terms of some sort of a relationship or a look or something. But there is a sense of sacrifice to what he is doing because he is going to end up being in prison uh, for the rest of his life. And like he doesn't know that he's going to be accepted at the prison and he doesn't know like he's going to go to the bad prison, like the one that he doesn't want to go to in the Rockies. That is that is maximum security and things of that nature. So, you know, he doesn't know that, but he is basically putting his life on the line. And it's uh, it's a it's a really, really nice moment. And again, some of the best scenes of this series have taken place either through legal hearings or through courtroom scenes, so I think it's only fitting that one of the most important uh, one of the most important scenes in the series, where Saul finally comes clean about everything. Of course, it takes place in a courtroom. Yep, it's very fitting. I think it it, it helps Kim's case ultimately. Whatever she's about to face with Cheryl, for Jean, Saul, whatever. I think the prison of living in. Nebraska wasn't going to get him anywhere, but I think it, it gets him to prison and, and you can have that sigh of relief a little bit. Like instead of the fear of being caught, you turn yourself in, in a way. I mean, he got caught, but the way that he ends up settling things, he kind of takes again, matters into his own hands, I think is a really great way for Jimmy to redeem himself in, in as much as he possibly can before the series concludes. And then we get to the conclusion of it where, like you said, the prisoners end up earnestly liking him because they remember him as Saul Goodman, sort of a, a friend to, to criminals. I love that he has his Cinnabon expertise, and that is translated into baking bread for the prison. And one day Kim comes to visit and says he's his lawyer. I guess her or whatever her bar license is does, never expires in New Mexico. And so she's able to share a cigarette with him in the meeting room, very akin to their times outside of the offices, whether it's at HHM or their own law offices. 
And as Kim is leaving, she sees uh, Jimmy in the prison yard and he gives her the finger guns and, and blows them off just like Kim did at the end of season five. And she gives him sort of a knowing look and looks back as she walks out. And that's how we end the series here. I will say that I don't think Kim and Jimmy end up together again. Like, I don't think they're romantic partners in the prison. It, there's a little sadness to all this, but the fact that they're sort of able to at least come to terms with each other again, I think is good enough. And and like we talked about, it's very different from the end of Breaking Bad, where Heisenberg is taken down with bullets and you get a bunch of Nazis being gunned down to death versus this much more quiet ending to the show, which I, as you and I talk about, I think the show has earned with the, its character building and all that. But uh, I was wholly satisfied with the ending of this show. I was satisfied with the ending as well. I think the finale was really, really good. I'm not sure if I would put it in like the the pantheon of all time finales, but not not every show is going to have uh, have a really like an all time great. Like it's really hard to end series. Like the fact that we got what we did. I think is very solid. Ultimately, this ended up being a love story. And I can't imagine what this series would have been if it wasn't for Kim. I think Kim really gave them a space to end the show because I think, again, when you look at, to me, the best episodes, the best finales of TV shows, I think are love stories. And, you know, I could go through a few examples. I think Halt and Catch Fire, I think... I don't think it's necessarily a romantic love story, but I think the two, the relationship between uh, the two lead female characters, like to me, that is that it, it kind of became their love story. And the fact that they were able to come to some sort of re- resolution, like that is what makes the Halt and Catch Fire finale great. I think the leftovers, that finale is great because it comes down to like the two lead characters and their romance and where it takes them and kind of the journey that they've been on, but that's what makes the leftover finale so great. And as much as people want to criticize Damon Lindelof for the lost ending, the leftovers ending makes up for that um, tenfold. And I would, I would say that that is probably one of the best finales that I've ever seen. And like the cheers finale also in a way has this, this way of kind of resolving a love story. It's not the same, but in order to have a really good finale, I think you have to have really good relationships between the characters. And I think when you don't have that, that's how you get like the Dexter finale that is almost universally being regarded as being really terrible. Or when you do such a disservice to the characters that you don't even recognize the show anymore. And I think that's what kind of happened with Game of Thrones. But what I think Better Call Saul was able to do was to kind of boil this down to its two most essential characters. And it's it sucks that Mike wasn't. I think Mike kind of started out being the second most, but kind of fell by the wayside as Kim took in more prominence. But you couldn't deny the chemistry between Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn. You just couldn't, like, from the very first scene. And I think you see it in that scene. Like, that scene with the cigarette is, is, is iconic. And I think it's going to be the thing that people take away from this from this show. Like, that is the image that people are going to take away, um, having the cigarette being in color and just the way that it, and that it came down. And the fact that, you know, of course Saul's going to go into prison, find his way, and, and continue, and, and like, not getting away with things, but, like, of course Saul's going to find his way because he always does. And, of course, Kim is going to kind of 
maybe not in as blatant a way, but he's going to kind of manipulate the system as well. So, you know, who knows where these two characters are going to end up. They're not, I don't think they're going to be in a nursing home together, holding hands as they die, but I think they are in a, in a much better place. And, and look, I don't know if conjugal visits are allowed, but it's got to be better than yup, yup guy, right? Why did you have to bring this up? Why? I, I mean, why? Why? I, I just, I feel like I had to. I feel like I had to. All right. Well, two things. One, the lost ending is good. Go listen to my podcast about it on here on EnterTheRealWorld.com from Broadcast App. Number two, something else I think is very interesting is you note that despite the fact that at the end of the courtroom scene, he says, hey, I'm, I'm James McGill. Everyone in prison calls him Saul. All the inmates do, all the guards do. So he is still kind of like trapped as Saul for the rest of his life. So it's like, yeah, you got to wait for it. But it's it's a weird like penance that he's always going to be Saul, despite the fact that he is sort of shed his guilt and is ready to to accept being J- James McGill again. He's going to be referred to Saul by everybody except for Kim for basically as long as he lives. But at least he won't get shanked in prison. So there's a trade off there. Well, you know, shank or be shanked, as uh, Scruffy the Jander in Futurama told me. Second Futurama reference of the episode. That's right. All right, overall thoughts on the season, and I guess overall thoughts on the series. Uh, I can't believe it's over. It's just, it's a really strange thing. Like, the way that I watched the show was probably very different than the way a lot of other people did, because basically, I, I watched six seasons of Breaking Bad. Uh, we podcasted about them. So I was binging, but I was still like taking my time. And the fact that it's it's like I went on this this one year journey with the first six seasons of Breaking Bad and then the five seasons of Better Call Saul. But then it's like, okay, now it's the final season and I'm watching this on a weekly basis. So it's just consuming it in a very different way. I'd be very curious to see how season six played as a binge. My guess, it plays a lot better as a binge uh, because you're not especially when I'm talking about like episode 10 and just kind of my annoyances with that. I am still a believer that season six would have been better as a 10 episode season. I understand why they did the, the extra episodes, but I, I just think it would have been better if it was a little bit tighter. I do think that there are some, probably two of my favorite episodes, the one where Nacho died and the one where Lalo died. Those are probably two of my favorite episodes of the entire series. So for that alone, I would say season six is definitely a huge thumbs up. I really like the finale. I think we end things in a really positive place. I think the Kim and Saul relationship comes down in a really interesting way, just the ups and downs and the way that things get resolved. I think it makes sense. I don't think it's overly sappy, but I also think it's not overly nihilistic. Like there is some hope there. And that's that's all you can really ask for. And where I think I come down in season six, I don't know how I, how I would rank it compared to the other seasons, but I would definitely say that there's a lot of really, really good stuff here. And I walked away immensely satisfied with the ending, and I am happy that there is resolution, but I'm also sad to see the show go. Like, I think you can hold those – like, I think it's kind of contradictory in a way. Like, there's still this feeling of, like, I really enjoy the the idea of watching the show on a weekly basis live and the adrenaline rush and the nervousness and the anxiety. Like, it's, it's, it's bad, but it's also kind of good in a way. So I'm going to miss that, but I'm kind of glad that, that the show has ended in, in a way that makes sense 
and like the show's not going to end up going too long or just end up being like a parody of itself especially dramas when they become parodies of themselves that's when things get really sad right i don't think those are necessarily contradictory at all because you'll you'll miss it and that's a good thing like it's it's ending the right time it should to the point where you're going to miss it it's not like a jesus finally or it's about time you know the most cold reaction you can have to this to be happy with the ending and to miss it, I think, is the best way a show can possibly end. It's interesting because I feel like this show is actually more consistent quality-wise than Breaking Bad in terms of the directing and the writing. But the last season might be the most uneven in that respect. And I think it has a lot to do with with playing with the time and, and, and things of that nature and the split or whatever else. But ultimately, it's a really satisfying season to end a, a show that i i really love it it is amongst my my favorite shows for sure as we as we end it and i plan on revisiting it for sure in the future uh and especially now that it's all over it's like oh you know can i play with it and watch it all again before watching breaking bad again or vice versa uh, you know the the airing order all these other fun things and i'll be i'll be interested to hear more about it and i'm going to be very interested in following what and Skelligan and Peter Gould and a lot of the other directors and writers do next, as well as the other actors and actresses. So this is a heck of a journey and an, an end to one of our series of podcasts here on the website. I think prequels are very difficult, but I think we've gotten like we've gotten two really, really good prequels this year. We've gotten the final season of Better Call Saul, but we've also got Prey, which is a prequel to the Predator franchise. So you can do prequels. You just have to be really careful in their execution. And you also have to have a point of view. You have to have interesting characters and your storytelling has to be really solid. I will say that the one thing I am glad is I'm glad they did not kill Kim. I think they, you know, they killed off everybody else and it was very much like, all right, well, we killed off Nacho. We killed off Howard. We killed off Lalo. Is Kim going to make it out of it? I'm glad she's the one character that did. I think in some ways I, it's it's fitting that that Saul and Kim both get to live because they kind of have to live with the consequences of the things that right. they've done in the past. It's almost a fate worse than death. In some ways, I mean, yeah, in in a lot of ways, I think that that is very much the case. Well, the good news, is, Jerome, is we're going to be talking about much happier shows to end the rest of the year. Uh, as we continue our Cancel Too Soon series, and in the month of October, we'll be talking about a comedy show I adore that you have not seen, and that is we will be talking both season one and season two of Party Down. So we get to talk about Rob Thomas again. I am very excited to talk about this. So I This is a weird show that I've never seen before. Um, it feels like I should have seen it, given all the people involved in it. We're also going to address the question once again, was this canceled too soon? Because it's coming back. Yeah, <laughs> because nobody's well, ever really gone. Well, is it coming back, though? That's something we can discuss, too. Maybe I'll do a little history of what this Party Down revival has looked like throughout its it, the course of its history. Okay. But we'll, we'll see about that when we get there. So, so I did, there is one more thing that I wanted to discuss. Okay. So this show talks takes place in 2010. So if you really think about it, like in five to six years, true crime is going to take off in a really huge way. Saul Goodman is the type of person who would be a talking head in these true crime shows. Like, you know, like Netflix would make a true crime series about Walter White. And you know that Saul Goodman would be all over that documentary and would just capture the imagination of people 
in in the quote unquote real world. Right? Heisenberg could be on Making a Murderer or whatever else. There's there's a lot of those characters I think would very like, much be like you know that's all good. Like that's that's where I would see the show going if it continued, which I don't want it to. Believe me, I do not. I I want the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad universe to be closed. Like if Vince Gilligan, a la Alanis Morissette, could have closed the book, that I would have been very happy with that. There you go. Well, and hey, 2010 is when I first watched Party Down, so there we go. As for plugs and stuff, you can just follow me on Twitter at KFord13. I do stuff with wrestling reviews, and I got a bunch of old podcasts here on the website, like about Lost and a bunch of stuff Jerome and I did in Adventure Time. Go listen to all those things, but Twitter is where when I do new stuff, you can find it. So Jerome, what do you have going on? Uh, at Jerome C1985 is where you can find me on the Twitters. Uh, next week, uh, Brian and I are doing our 100th episode for Superhero Pantheon. Kevin, we are doing something very special for the 100th episode. We are going to be reviewing the six-episode comic book series, Batman 89. Very much looking forward to that. And uh, uh, a couple of plugs that are not personal, but if you are somebody who is uh, is still jonesing uh, for some crime in your life for Better Call Saul, from Better Call Saul, I have a movie recommendation, Emily the Criminal starring Aubrey Plaza. A lot of Breaking Bad vibes there. And uh, the sequel to Heat is out in book form. Heat 2, I listened to the audiobook. It is, God, it's so good. It's so good. I just want the movie so badly in my life. But uh, yeah, some additional recommendations um, for if you want to keep the uh, Better Call Saul vibes going. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And read Bob Odenkirk's memoir as well. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Go check out that book. Uh, And that's going to do it for us for this month. So for Jerome, this is Kevin. Thanks for listening to the entirety of the Real Bad Podcasting series. And we'll see you on our next series and see you next month, of course, for Cancel Too Soon. Well, Kevin, now that it's all done, I guess you could say I'm real sad.